Because, you know, we didn't have anything like this in, in, in Toronto, in Canada. We didn't have Fangoria, you know, there's nothing like this. And I open it up and there's a huge article about Tombs of the Blind Dead. I'm like, holy oh, fuck, what, what? And I almost got nailed by a car on Spadina. Step off the curb, I'm like, oh, shit. And there was no email or anything at that time. So I run home to where I was living up at Young and Shepherd, And um, I called a number and I got the voicemail. And I left this long ass voicemail about how I almost got killed. And this magazine's incredible. And I sell my soul to be part of this world. And in issue number three, Rod transcribed the whole call and published that. So then it was published in Room Work. Hello and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. The horror genre has had many great ambassadors, acclaimed writers, actors, and filmmakers who wear their horror badge with great pride. Folks such as Ray Bradbury, Forrest Ackerman of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and Joe Bob Briggs, to name a few. These are talents who have not just worked in the genre, but used their place at the podium to consistently champion it. Any horror fan is of course well aware of Fangoria Magazine. The beloved publication has graced newsstands with its often gory covers and all your favorite monsters since 1979. For many fans of what our guest today refers to as freaky films, Fangoria is the last word on all things great and gruesome. Though the magazine is still going strong, a testament to its status as horror magazine supreme when you consider the many well-regarded publications that have not survived the advent of news sites and social media, Fangoria has of course had its ups and downs. In 2009, the magazine was transitioning from one of its great editors, Tony Timpone, to a new voice. This new editor would not only shake things up at Fangoria in what would prove to be one of its best runs in the history of the magazine, it was also how many came to know one of horror's greatest ambassadors. Our guest today is Chris Alexander. Chris is not only a great writer and an expert, a term he will likely hate to hear me describe him as, he is also a visionary filmmaker, a skilled musician and composer, and one of the most robust speakers on all things freaky. Chris sat down to discuss the beginnings of his writing career at Warner Brothers and Rue Morgue magazine, visiting Nicolas Cage on his island, and that's not a turn of phrase, what it is to be a horror fan in our current film climate, and getting to know the late legend, George Romero. I love talking with Chris. He speaks quickly and concisely and always says things that leave me thinking. He's a lot like the movies he and I discuss in that way. You know it was a good one because it leaves you with something to think about. He's also incredibly funny and now works with one of my horror heroes, Charles Band, at Full Moon Features. A couple notes on this interview. Chris was struggling with a nasty bout of COVID when we recorded, so he sounds a little hoarse. Also, we have removed a section where Chris and I talk about undervalued contemporary horror films because the interview was simply too damn long. This will be dropping as a bonus later this week, so be sure to check it out. It's filled with recommendations for some films that might have gone under your radar. Okay, here we go. Let's get into things freaky and fantastic with Chris Alexander. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm on the good side of the ground, which is always a good thing. So I cannot 
I could complain. If I did, I'd be a dick. So I, I'm well. Thank you. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a plus to be right side up. That's what they tell me. I mean, yeah. I don't know the alternative, but I, I'm okay with this <laughs> side. So sleeping. It's the one I know. You know, it's the one I know. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, my you. pleasure. I, I like, I see a couple of things. I see Jess Franco box set over there. Yeah. 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 Fully formed. And then I see a really weird, weird way to, weird local yokel way to celebrate David Cronenberg in the way in the back. Is that like right. donuts? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I love so, that movie. I'm, I'm, a, I think it's weird and, and nobody's seen it. You probably have, but. Oh, yeah. I saw, I saw it in the theater when it came out. Yeah. And I don't, I don't remember much about it. <laughs> I went because of David was in it. Yeah. He's great in it. I just think it's wacky and it has kind of a, it has sort of a, a, a queer sensibility at the time that I, that there wasn't um, too many films uh, that had that I was sort of fond of. Um, Babe Cronenberg was wonderful in it. And uh, yeah, representing sort of the Toronto. Uh, I wanted to go with something a little less overt as like just putting a Cronenberg poster up. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a secret handshake. And I know he'd be, he'd be happy about that for sure. So, well, well done. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, it's interesting because we're going to start our chat today with a quote from the man himself, which seemed appropriate for, for the fact that I know that you and, and he are, are, are buds. Um, so this is, this is something David said. He said, I think of horror films as art, as films of confrontation, films that you confront aspects of your own life that are difficult to face. Just because you're making a horror film doesn't mean you can't make an artful film. Well, I, I 100% agree. And, and, and so would every serious horror film fan, I think. I think that, you know, as you know, the um, being a fan of this stuff, um, no matter no matter how mainstream horror gets, it's always kind of looked at a bit askance by the mainstream, um, looked at as a lesser genre. And we know, I mean, those of us who really know this stuff and have such a broad definition as to what horror is, know that it is probably, you know, if you want to really study any culture throughout history, in this past hundred and so years of cinema, you look at their dark fantasy and horror movies because it is the most clear path, direct line to um, a culture's anxieties and and their their purity. And sometimes that purity is quite dark. But you know, we, we know what can be done with the horror movie on an intellectual level, on an artistic level. It's not just um, as Peter Vincent says in Fright Night. Um, demented madmen in ski masks hacking up young virgins you know it's not it's not just that there's so much more to it and thankfully so I, it's, I, thankfully it's that too though yeah i mean sure everything has its place at the table yeah you know, sometimes you want to just ride the ride and have a bit of fun and hate yourself in the morning <laughs> it doesn't always have to be um you know a24 yeah at all. That's it. <laughs> I, I was chatting with brian usna uh recently on the show and he was talking about uh, how when he started out and he wanted to do horror films, that, it, that they were sort of looked at very much sort of akin to, to as if he was saying he wanted to do softcore. He said they weren't quite as low as people saw hardcore porn, but they were viewed at about the level of softcore porn. Um, well, you know, and then there's that line, and I forget who says it. I really do. I can't believe it. must be COVID brain. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I usually be able to pull quotes out of, out of thin air. But it's... um. Is it, it's, I want to say it's John Landis. Yeah. But the only difference between horror and porn is what spurts where and when. Yeah. You know, and a lot of our great directors came from 
from from hardcore, didn't they? Like, yeah. Oh, uh, Wes Craven was doing doing porn, and, and uh, even David, to some degree, was coming out of Cinepix, which was known for their their softcore uh, sex stuff out of Montreal. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, there is definitely that that feeling that. But now I think in this day and age, it's funny. Porn has been legitimized. Somewhat. That's right. Um, you know, yeah. it is considered, and then throughout that, there was a long journey to get there. But I don't think it's it's maybe looked at with a much kinder eye than horror these days. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but the narrative is flipped. <laughs> it was a friend of mine recently sent me. I got this this DVD in the mail. It didn't have a label on it or anything, and it just he just with a note saying you you should check this out. So I popped it in, and it was um I want to say early eighties, but it was a a. a porn version of a gay porn version of Dracula that was like shockingly high in production value and like very kind of arty in a good way. And it you could tell they had cut it cut a lot of the story and tried to focus on the sex. But he was like, do they still make this kind of thing? And I was like, I don't know. I hope so. But I don't you certainly I haven't. No, seen it. I don't think they do. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, no. I mean, I used to have a print. I collect 16 prints, 16 millimeter prints. And I had a print of, um, I only sold it because I wanted to upgrade to something else. And there's only so many times you can watch a porn movie before you're like, all right. <laughs> yeah. But um, it was Dracula Sucks. Right. Jamie Gillis, which is a pretty, I mean, it's, it's a 70s porn movie. So there was always much more of an attention to to actually making cinema. Yeah. So that is a pretty accurate telling of the Dracula story, funnily enough. More than than a lot of the you know so called real Dracula. Yeah, right. We're doing that's for sure. Yeah, it's it's funny to think of how sort of um, you know much like like horror and porn of and and they they get put into these categories of sort of these artless movies by some people, and I'm like really because like if you've watched them, you know, there's some of the most artful films that I think you can find. I mean, you look at some of the stuff from the '70s. Even stuff like Wakefield Pool is doing with gay porn and stuff like that. You know, there's like these are these beautifully shot movies that sort of take their time and you know they yeah like Rad- Radley Metzger, Radley Metzger being another one too. Yeah, it's, it's like a real auteur. And then movies like Cafe Flesh, which yeah, there's things being put into things, but man, incredible story and great attention to production uh, detail and and uh, ideas. You know, these are. But I guess that's what audiences wanted back then. Yeah. They wanted an actual cinematic experience. That, And also, it was legitimate. Sammy Davis Jr. would be on The Tonight Show talking about how many times he went to see Deep Throat. Right. I mean, there was a certain yeah. kind of legitimacy in those early days when movies were kind of, um, it was kind of hip. So yeah. you liked, uh, or horny movies. Yeah. Before the video, I think the video era really kind of steamrolled it. As we know, because I mean, you watch Boogie Nights or something, and it tells you that, you know, once video came in and people were making these movies ad nauseum on handicams and, Kind of the the party was over. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it, maybe it's back now. But then when I think of horror porn these days, I think of like Joanna Angel, and there's no. I mean, God bless her for being a cottage industry, but I've seen some of those uh, like uh, fucking Stein and stuff like that. And yeah. That's pretty rough. It's pretty yeah. rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't seen any of it. I'm I'm I I would hazard a guess it has a little less of the artful side of some of the '70s stuff we're talking about. Yeah, it just gets right to the meat, and it's all played right. for. Uh, you know, laughs and it's, it's right. cheap, cheap as all get out. But some of that 70s <laughs> stuff was um, was really, really, really good stuff. And then, I mean, I just watched, rewatched um, uh, Christina Lindbergh uh, thriller. Uh, yeah. They Call Her One Eye recently. And what a revelation that was when we saw, I mean, for years I'd seen They Call Her One Eye. 
and then the, the full thriller, a cruel picture, which actually has hard, you know, he shot hardcore for that. Now going back, and some of that's amazing, and it really hammers home some of the abuse that that character takes in the brothel. But it's also totally gratuitous, and in fact, in many ways, I kind of prefer it without the hardcore stuff. Yeah. I like don't need to see like hairy balls smashing against like weird, uh, you know, gelatinous orifices. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes those in retrospect, those seventies, the lighting or the age of the celluloid does doesn't do the human. Uh, genitalia and much kindness, I don't think. Yeah, you know? yeah. So some of that, and it's really cool and it's amazing and that movie's brilliant, but I'm okay with the cut version where it takes the sex out. Yeah, I, I, is, is that the one, is um, um, Vinegar Syndrome putting that out a new version of that? Soon? Maybe, I mean, I only have the, um, the, it was the Synapse one from a few years ago. Um, it's, is Everyone's it called... always re-putting out everything. I, try, yeah. I, try, I do my best not to double and triple dip on stuff. I, I know. I I'm a collector to a point. Yeah. But I don't care about slipcases and things. You know, I don't yeah, need yeah, yeah. new fan art and, and, and for, even 4K. I don't get that. Ex- I don't need to see Thriller, A Cruel Picture in 4K. Yeah, it depends on the they, movie for me on that one. Well, I, I don't need, and even like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and things like that. Not those movies. No, for me, like, I don't mind seeing like the newest Hollywood movie in 4K because it probably was shot that way. It was shot in 4K. Yeah. Or there's, yeah, there's definitely an attention to detail that was, that was missing. But I remember, I remember even going back retrospectively a few, maybe 20 years ago when Psycho arrived on Blu ray for the yeah. first time. And, you know, you see that opening <laughs> shot where Janet Lee's putting her clothes back on after a tryst. With um, what's his pickle? Her boyfriend, I forget the other John. Whatever. Anyways, uh, and you see a pimple right on her face. And yeah. No, I never saw that pimple before. Hitchcock yeah. didn't want you to see that. No, no. Sometimes we don't need too much resolution to re- on these retroactively going back to these films. Yeah. That never intended to be that sharp. I'm trying to think of what the film was, but uh, I was watching something recently uh, that was remastered to 4K. I think it was one of the um, Paul Morrissey pictures love flesh for frankenstein or but yeah. one of those two and it, it was in 4k and i was like it it just fucked over the effects you could see seams and things that you that i that i could never see before and i don't and because he didn't he couldn't either but now you can and i'm like i don't want to see that stuff you're not supposed I to i don't want to see it and and you know the beauty of film is that it, it is it does have a separation between audience and, and it, it creates you know film is a dream you know, it's a yeah. cliche to say, but but when you turn the light, it's like turning on the lights on at a greasy bar after hours. And you see yeah. doing all that. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't you don't want it. You want the illusion to be there. And I I think some of this hardcore restoration going on in these films like it's too much, man. It's yeah, so, it's it's catering to a different audience, anyways. And I shouldn't say it's too much because I'm not. I'm just not the audience. Yeah, I, I think. I think the, only, the only time I want to see Flesh for Frankenstein in any way improved is if the 3D is improved. Or they did put that. I can see those guts come out me out of you know, hanging out. Yeah, feet. they put it back, and I can't remember what it's called. The the 3D that that you need a 3D TV for, not the red and blue. TV. Yeah, well, that's the good one. Yeah, yeah and they yeah. they did put it back in that, so I got to see it for the first time in proper 3D, and that was cool. Oh man, that movie! And I don't, I really need to invest in a 3D TV now since they they cost nothing. Yeah, because I'm a 3D junkie, and I, I remember seeing projected Flesh for Frankenstein theatrically, and and just like I literally grabbing, you know, when he's giving that big death speech, the little yeah. and the organ is literally dripping, and little chunks are coming out, and you're literally grabbing at the air because yeah. you can't fucking believe this thing is right there. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just, it is an astonishing experience. I think the first, like, genre film I saw in 3 was probably Friday the 13th. The, the, that's the, a good one in 3D too yeah that was in, yeah. A, in a theater like on a proper yeah I think that was the first one I saw and I you know I was I loved it I mean it, you know like people who make the argument they're like well it's a gimmick I'm like so what <laughs> I don't care if it's it's a good gimmick <laughs> and it should be it was always intended as a gimmick I mean House of Wax is still the best 3D movie I've ever seen and it was all about can can man can 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 women and paddle ball man and, yeah. and shit coming at you I mean, that's the way it should be. I was really bummed out when 3D had its the most recent renaissance post Avatar and James yeah. Cameron. It's all about depth. It's, it's like, nah, it's so boring. It's like staring <laughs> right at a Viewmaster for like three yeah. hours. I want to see like, shit yeah, okay, coming out. I can see around and everything. Yeah. Like, Throw some shit at me, man. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's why, and then I went to like, you know, Final Destination 5, which everyone's like, oh, it's shit. It's shit. It's the worst. I and there's like it. that scene. I love it too. It's 3D. <laughs> yeah, the guy, it's great. Is that the one? I think it's five or four. With I the think guy, so. Um, he gets sucked to the bottom. I think a couple of them were in 3D. Of the swimming pool? Get, yeah, and the bowels come out <laughs> yeah. of that. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, bowels totally. Bowels coming at me. I have Throw such a, at me. I, I have such a overall kind of, I don't even know if it qualifies as guilty pleasure. I'm pretty fond of that franchise on a whole. I just think there's some, of the, some of the deaths are, are just like that. The sequence with the the big pile up on the freeway is fucking best. masterful. Like it's so the well best. done. And I've been I've been saying that since day one. And the thing is, if you read them as black comedies, they're yeah. masterpieces. They really are. They really just they don't make any pretense to be anything. But they're almost like um, Louis Bunnell's and Sal, uh, like Salvador Dali's like in Chandelier. There, there's really the plot's there to keep you going, to keep connected all together. Right. But really, it's only about set pieces. Each set piece. Each, yeah. each operatic set piece. That's why you're yep. watching it. And they, those movies hammer at home every time. The oh, third yeah. one is The third one I find to be maybe the, the least of them because I find the set pieces not that, that interesting. But the DVD was cool when you could choose the ending or choose how people got murdered. Yeah. So I mean, bring on the William Castle shtick. You know? Totally. I mean, nobody's doing that. Bring, and, bring it. And please. I liked, I can't remember which Final Destination is, but the one where you didn't realize till the end where it picked up with the first one. Do you remember that? It was like, yeah. you didn't realize it was sort of like a prequel, really, until the ending. Yeah. Where I was like, that's an interesting device. Yeah, like, was that the final destination? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, it actually caught me off guard, though. I remember being like, oh shit, we're back where we started from. I didn't. Uh, I find them to be, I find them to be uh, one of the most satisfying of the franchises because they're, we can't, they know exactly what they're delivering. Yeah. And they deliver it really, really well. Some a little bit better than others, but. I mean, you know what you're getting in. You know what you're getting into. Your expectations are locked, and you always kind of That's get right. what you came. From. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm being a bit, I'm being a bit tangential here, but it, you were talking about the William Castle, and uh, made me think. Like, what did you think of that period there, where we were getting remakes of House on a Haunted Hill, and you know, these they were sort of the dark. I think it was called Dark Castle. Was doing they were doing those kind of. At, at the time, I was, um, you know, I started kind of in this whole entertainment world professionally as a as a publicist with Warner Brothers Films here in Canada. Right. And at the time that I was very excited because I'd always get the intel on, you know, I was I was getting the dailies from Burbank seeing who was going to be cast as Robert Neville in this fucking I Am Legendary. It was Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah. And it was on the schedule. It'd be off the schedule, but it was high drama. I was watching, you know, there for the production of like Queen of the Damned and oh my God, what a terrible movie. But, but I was like, you know, <laughs> such a fan of the book and I was so excited. And, and I was there for the birth of Dark Castle. And yeah. I was like, you know, I was super stoked to see what they were going to do with this. Yeah, with this shit, and I liked William Malone's House in a Haunted Hill. I, I did too. Yeah. yeah, the only thing I was missing was was there was no interactive 
I think they dropped the ball. There should have been an interactive gimmick with the audience, whether it was right. 3D, Ghost Fear, and 13 Ghost, same thing. I thought that was solid, uh, you know, booga booga exploitation fun horror. But cool again, ghosts, yeah. missing the, give me the Ghost Fear. The know? gimmick, yeah, I want the gimmick. And then I, I, they started to, I think, well, I forget what the third one was, was Ghost Ship, which ghost I ship. didn't think was so great, but that opening was. I was know, just going to say the opening just... Alone, and, and when we saw that at a press screening, and I'm sitting there with all the old bastards at Warner, like the president, <laughs> and that shit's. Ha- and I'm always the guy in the back yelling because I loved all this stuff. They'd always yeah. come out of there going, "Oh, it's a piece of shit. How are we gonna sell this?" And I'm like, "Fucking, it sells itself, man. <laughs> yeah. This stuff's great. This is great." But um, uh, Christ, man, yeah, those were those were fun days. But I digress. They lost the plot though. Then they started go steering away from. Yeah, you know, the original thing was castle only, but I don't. They just broughtened it up too much, and then they cut Gothica, which is still a fun little movie, but it doesn't fit into. It's the nothing to manifesto. do with that umbrella. Yeah, no. No, and I, I, I don't know. I remember what happened after after that. I guess they did House on Haunted Hill too. Return to House on Haunted yeah, Hill. which you could like was like a choose your own adventure gimmick. Again. Yeah, direct to video, which was fun to some yeah. degree, but but, but I don't was, know what. I guess is it still around? I don't know. I don't is think it? so. I don't think so. If it I mean, if it is, I have I don't remember the last thing they put out. I mean, I well, can't. it was it was wasn't it? It was um it was the guys it was. Joel Silver and Walter Silver, Hill and all those, yeah. right, who were doing had success with Tales from the Crypt. And That's right. Which yeah. hit hit again with their reviving their childhood horror memories. Yeah, but they kind of lost stuff. the through line. I think, like you said, when no. they started kind of just just they just, it started as yeah they were going to be doing these William Castle things, and that's what was called Dark Castle, and then they just started doing anything, just any horror movie, and, anything. So there was no rhyme or reason for yeah. it at all. It just became down market horror stuff, and yeah. Yeah, so, but it was a missed opportunity. I think if that was a revive today, and and God love him or hate him, but someone like Blumhouse would have done it right. Oh, totally. You know, and, yeah, and I think it would have been interactive, but it would have been gimmicky, and it really would have kept the spirit of Castle alive. You know. Yeah, uh, that did not quite. So let's kind of let's let's sort of go to the go to the the start for a second here. Where did you grow up? Uh, in Toronto. In Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I told I, I told Bico. I was yeah. born in Toronto, and then I grew up in Etobicoke, okay. um, area Westmall and, and uh, Burnthorpe in Etobicoke, Ontario. Right. So, uh, but I'll we'll say Toronto because at that, that, that point it was called the Borough of Etobicoke. Okay. I think it's its own thing now, but it was still Toronto. Right. And do you think like, uh, um, sort of Toronto and Toronto, you know, Toronto area, the GTA? To a lot of people listening to this, that doesn't mean anything, but you know what that is. The area around Toronto. Do you think Toronto-based filmmakers sort of have their own identity in terms of, of world cinema the way that some other cities do? Um, depends on what. I, I don't know. No, right. I know for years I would say no. Right. Because I think the problem was like Blood and Donuts is an interesting one because it's set in Toronto. Yeah. But I would always say as a as a as a young cinephile who's very arrogant and and sneering upon Canadian film that wasn't David Cronenberg. Um, you know, we got a big problem here because we don't set in our, our movies. We don't ha- our city doesn't have an identity. Our country doesn't have an identity. We don't have a taxi driver with a guy marauding around around Toronto. There's none of that danger. There's none of that, that, that history that we're really exploiting. We're always pretending we're someone else. And I really yeah. didn't know a lot about tax shelter movies at the time. And, but... Um, and then I retrospectively went back and saw something like The Silent Partner, which does take place in Toronto and really kind of was our taxi driver, yeah. which is a fucking masterpiece. And exploring movies of that period, where some of them were actually set in Toronto and 
And there was a flavor of those tax shelter movies. So I, at that point, 70s, early 80s, yeah, Canadian movies, Toronto movies had that vibe, had that feeling. But that's only because we're going back and seeing landmarks that are no longer here and we're being, you know, nostalgic for that time and place. Yeah. As far as like a, a person, a personality and contemporary Toronto made films, I would say no. I would say only because the people, maybe it's the same handful of, of people doing the same movies over and over, you get a kind of local uh, tourism maybe. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't feel like there's a, a distinct fingerprint of a, of a Toronto, the Toronto experience. I find Toronto to be, this is coming from someone who was born and raised in Toronto and, you know, a film critic in Toronto. And remember at one point until I left, I couldn't handle it anymore, but the Toronto Film Critics Association and a lot of young people coming in from everywhere else but Toronto to Toronto. And I, I felt it was always kind of a melting pot of sensibilities. So no, I don't think that there is a specific Toronto identity yet. I've seen it come in fits and waves and spurts, but I haven't felt the de facto authentic Toronto experience in, in cinema. Right. And uh, except for the silent partner, I mean, again, you go back in that movie and you're like, I want to take, you know, they're having dinner on Captain John's boat. And it takes place in the Eaton Center and I there's A&A &A records and, or class of 1984 is kind of feels to me like an authentic Toronto movie, but it does not takes, doesn't take place in Toronto. And silent, I was in, uh, when silent I went to partner is the name of the one you're talking about. Which one? Silent partner. Oh, I haven't, I haven't, you seen, haven't it. seen it. No, I haven't seen it. Oh my God. Elliot Gould, Christopher Plummer. It's it's oh, an ultra violent psychotronic bank robbery mystery thriller with twists and turns like you wouldn't believe, and it's all set. That sounds great. It takes place in the Eat Center when there used to be a bank. Oh, really? That's uh, right amazing. In the front, off the Queen Street entrance. <coughs> yeah, but it is. Um, it and John Candy's in it at an early performance. Is it easy? To, it, is man. it easy to get? It was on. You know, Criterion Channel resurrected it for a okay. while. So which me, which means to me that. Either they put it out on blue recently or somebody asked. Okay. Because it was a dynamite transfer. But yeah, put that top of your list. Sign Definitely. partner. Definitely. The de facto Toronto movie. And uh, it's just a kick-ass warped. Sounds warped awesome. Horror noir a gangster. Can't believe I haven't mystery. seen it. Or that, that I, I'm not, I've heard of it, but but not not much. Like I, I remember it being in an article that I read. It was mostly about Cronenberg's work, but it, they sort of bungled it in there. And it was kind of, but I, I, yeah, I haven't seen it. I'll, I have to check no, it out. Yeah, so there was that. Then obviously, obviously, Cronenberg video drum too, which is also yeah. Even though they don't hammer me on the head with Toronto, it's still Toronto and yeah, that's City TV. You know, Civic TV, yeah. City TV. But um, yeah, modern Toronto movies. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a bit. I'm not. You know, it's funny. I'm in Toronto, but and I've shot all my movies within the GTA, but they're pardon me, always financed by Europeans or Americans. And I'm always working with my own kind of, in my own kind of universe, sub-universe, yeah. as opposed to with that whole world. So I've always felt like my stuff's kind of existing in its own little weird uh, void out in the Halton Hills up here. So I'm doing something right. else. I'm the Halton Gothic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I shoot everything. And we have these incredible rural areas that no one's ever touched. And I just, I just jam into all those. Yeah, that's I what never, I did with when I shot Dover. I just no one cared. No one asked me. No. A few people stopped just to be like, "Cool, can I watch from it?" And I was like, "Go for it!" Like, you know, that's sort of part of the fun of getting away from kind of you know shooting in a big city where you have to kind of deal with a lot more bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's look, hand me the gigantic budget and I'll play by the rules. But sure. if I'm operating on this, um, you know, guerrilla style filmmaking, which I tend to end up 
working in, which I'm comfortable with for now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go through hoops of fire just to get yeah. a shot. <laughs> a permit, no. yeah, to get a no. five-minute shot. Yeah, no. totally. No. Fuck it, no. <laughs> and I'm curious, so when you were growing up in Toronto, what were some of the formative, for you, formative movies and, and filmmakers that that sort of got you got you started? Uh, Toronto uh, being anywhere. I mean, I would just, it was the same ones that anywhere else. Yeah, I don't mean the Toronto part. I just mean like, who are the people? It was less, yeah. So it was less um, the movies I was watching as to how I was consuming them. Right. And that was definitely a Toronto experience. Okay. Um, so when I was a kid and discovering um, Fangoria and you know, same thing, everybody else and hiding it in comic books so that no one in this convenience store knew what I was reading. Because yeah. in Ontario at the time, Fango was up in the horn rack the jump up and pull it down <laughs> but um and reading about you know, sometimes i would find out about horror movies from comic books because i was an avid comic book guy especially yeah. horror comics and weird stuff and, and spider-man i love spider because spider-man was weird you know there was always a darker more existential angsty kind of edge to spider-man yeah the 70s stuff that i really responded to yeah um but always on the back pages you'd get movie posters and cool shit so i that's how i discovered about invasion of the body snatchers the 78 version mm -hmm. on the back of a batman comic when i was four and I knew I had to see this movie, but I couldn't, it was only PG, but my parents, you know, PG back then was rough and, uh, they went. Take really? That version's PG? Yeah. Huh. PG all the way across the board, man. MPAA and Canada, PG. Can't believe it. I, that in surprises it. me. Yeah. I, I've seen that well, movie numerous times. There's, yeah. I mean, uh, Brooke Adams is completely nude at yeah, the end. And, yeah. And, there's and it's Gore a fucking galore. scary movie. <laughs> It's scary and gory and nihilistic. Yeah. But back, you know, back in the 70s, you're only 10 years, at 78, you're only 10 years away, 10 years shy of when the MPAA reformed. And I mean, I just ran a print of um, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, which is my favorite Hammer Dracula. Yeah. And my son and I, uh, terrifying. It, you know, I've seen the movie a thousand times, but to see it projected, it's fucking scary. And it's also the bloodiest of all the Hammer Draculas. I mean, there's fucking gore squirting everywhere. There's a real dark sexual subtext to it with the Victorian doll. And, I want to ask you about that. That's interesting because so I, I like I guiltily will admit that the Hammer films were something that I kind of missed. Like I didn't start watching them until like two years ago because I when I grew up, like I the movies that I sort of got hooked into were like prominently, I think I started on like Full Moon, so Puppet Master and like, you know, all the kind of, I loved little creature movies and Jason and Freddy and all that. And then Dawn of the Dead was the movie that changed everything. Yeah, me too. Yeah, like yeah. I saw that. Well, I, Hammer was a big deal to me only because of the gothic stuff. And people around me loved gothic. My uncle got, you know, I found out about monsters through his model kits and stuff. And, and uh, I, I love, I really responded to that, but you know, you couldn't really see them. There wasn't a lot of hammer on television that I was aware of. That's so. what I'm, that, that's what I was going to say. Like city but TV. I would, read, I would read about hammer. Like I would yeah. read about this stuff and I would see the iconography and I knew who the players were. And then by the time we got to the video store age and I could start a lot of that because hammer was widely distributed. Those early ones through Warner brothers and universal, they were readily available on video right from day one. Some of the other ones, not so much. You had to dig, but but anyways, the Hammer hammer stuff, we were watching Dracula's Risen from the Grave, to my point, and it's rated G. It's like, what the fuck? And then um, there's a big <laughs> yeah. card at the beginning, rated G for all audiences. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. Now, is that just because it's old? Was 15, he was afraid to go to bed. He's like, oh, man, I just keep thinking the Chris Lee's going to pop up. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. not joking. He's seen everything. That's but, so um, funny. You know, and then Beneath the Planet of the Apes was 68 as well, or 69. And uh, 
or 70, somewhere in that pocket. And uh, it's the goriest, most nihilistic of them all. You know, they, they shoot each other. Zay, Dr. Zayas is blown apart. Everybody Taylor's dies. Yeah. And, then they, and then his bloody, <laughs> Charlton Heston's bloody finger blows the planet up and everyone's dead. Yeah. And then as soon as it's over, there's no credits. It just pops up. Rated G. You're like, holy shit. So, yeah, Invasion was PG. And I was, uh, the year later, my parents went out to see Apocalypse Now. And I knew it was playing on City TV because I knew that's where all the good shit was. World premiere. Or at least Canadian premiere. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the babysitter was told, don't let him watch it. I was five. You watched Apocalypse but, Now when you were five? No, no. They went out to see Apocalypse <laughs> oh, okay. Now. Invasion was on TV. <laughs> got it. Got it. it was, okay. You know, the big premiere in, in Toronto. Yeah. Apocalypse. But they told the babysitter, don't let him watch Body Snatch. Right. She falls asleep. I press the city TV button on the Appropriate. cable box. Yeah. And right to see Donald Sutherland's head caving in by, by himself. So it's a one guy caving in his own image with that fetal heart monitor going in the background. I was fucking ruined. But City TV was a huge, huge portal for me and for a lot of us in Toronto. Late great movies, staying up all night, circling the TV guide, sleeping with an alarm clock so I could get up and watch these yeah. movies yeah. by myself. And then we'd get the Buffalo feeds in, whether through rabbit ears or cable. So like Channel 29, WTV, or WGRC's The Cat's Pajamas was a huge one because they'd show Blackula and they came in Cronenberg Shivers, the American print called They Came From Within, which I saw when I was like eight. Wow. Um, man, it was <laughs> all that shit, you know? And then we ended up getting like First Choice Super Channel, whatever it was called, the first yeah. Canadian, uh, our version of HBO. Which became and TMN, would, yeah. Later TMN, yeah. Yeah. But um, they would only have a handful of movies and they'd show them ad nauseum. So I was in 1982, you know, I was seven, watching heavy metal every day of my life and loving it. I shouldn't have been. I would never show a seven-year-old heavy metal, but no. it bother me. I loved it. And uh, cat, the remake of the Cat People and yeah. you know, all kinds of this shit. So television was a huge window for me to consume and find this stuff. And then later on, like all of my generation, through exploring the bowels of the video store and trying to find the most obscure, ugly-ass shit that wasn't in the mainstream uh, or down-market 10th generation bootlegs uh, that you'd have to order from Sinister Cinema in California. So <laughs> you had to get really fucking serious back then. If you and, and you got shit copies of stuff that you didn't care. Because yeah, you were, that's right. You, you could hear it. You could see it. It was there. I you think had that, a copy. It, it almost felt like part of what was sort of, you know, risque or forbidden about it was like, you know, that it was shitty quality it was almost like part of what amped up that, you know, I probably shouldn't be watching this kind of no, quality. No, it, it was that. And then you'd have the two VCRs eventually if you upgraded and start <laughs> yeah. dubbing your own copies of shit. Yeah. And then uh, distributing them because then you could be a smut peddler yourself. And there was a whole, you know, it's you romanticize the past no matter what, but it really was a sense of quest. I mean, what do I think that's a better time than now when all this amazing cinema is available to you if you just breathe? No, of course not. But you definitely had a sense of, of, it definitely was a secret handshake. Yes. Yeah. A club of hardcore guys that were, and girls who were looking for this stuff and had to really fucking work yeah. to find it. I remember yeah. just, you know, I was describing to my husband recently that the Jumbo video used to have, I don't know if they all had this, but the one near me did. It was the horror section was made to look like a scary castle and they'd cobwebs oh, sure. on it. And that, that was, that, that was, was a franchise great. thing. I think they all had Did that. they do that? Yeah, and then there was another one. It was even better where I used to live. We moved to Mississauga years later when I was like 11. And uh, there was a place called Bandito Video. I guess there were a few around. I don't know. And uh, their horror section was twice as big as Jumbo's. 
it was freaking crazy. And that's where, you know, by that point, I was reading Gore Zone and yeah. reading Tim Lucas's video Watchdog and finding out that these movies were released, some of them under five or six different titles, you know? Yeah. And so I was, always, and different cuts and different, so I was always trying to like compare cuts of things. And, and I'd rent the same movie over and over and then discovering Charlie Band's Wizard Video label and all yeah. that shit. It was just nonstop um, awesome exploration and discovery. Why do you think that, you know, we both mentioned Dawn of the Dead as being you know, a formative movie and, you know, a movie that was sort of a game changer. And I find yeah. that for a lot of people who, who are, you know, not, not passive horror fans, like proper, you know, horror fans, that that's, that is their, that's the starting point for so many people. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it's Dawn on one level was a revolutionary gore film. I mean, it's, you know, the stuff that was seen in that film hadn't really been seen to that extreme. Uh, what Savini was doing in that movie still packs a punch. Yeah. Um, it, but it had a mythical quality to it. And if you were, I remember my, my cousin lived in uh, Windsor telling me, you know, at the time, the Ontario censor board was always draconian. And um, either Dawn was released here in a, in a eviscerated version because they did that to Day of the Dead. I remember later going, the fuck is this? They literally <laughs> went in there and like hand cut shit out. There was no yeah. drop of blood in it or swear words. Wow. How do, like, you even, oh how do you even do that today? The Dead oh have it hold up. I have a story about that in a minute, but the Day of the Dead uh, or Dawn of the Dead, he used to, his friends and him would drive over the border to Detroit every weekend just to watch Dawn of the Dead. <clears throat> and he would tell me this as a kid and be like, oh, wow, what's this Dawn of the Dead? And so it was always like, like dark myth, dark sorcery around this. And if you read Fangoria, you know, the first Fangoria became a horror mag because of an article they ran in the first issue about Dawn of the Dead. So their entire legacy was informed by, by that film. And it was just a huge thing. And then you'd go in the video store and you'd see that, you know, the font, like the army font of Dawn of the Dead and that green, yeah. that HBO box with the three faces of Roger rising. Yeah, from. that's right. That's the color it I remember. became this thing, like it looked so fucking cheap. But then you have that Roger Ebert quote on it saying it's a savagely satanic vision of an America. And you're like, wow, this movie, wow. And then to see it, and I think the reason why everyone responded to it so greatly is that Dawn fires on every known cylinder. Yeah. You know, it is a kick-ass survivalist film. It's an amazing war movie. It's an existential, almost art house character study piece. It's a social satire. It's a tragedy. Um, it's a comedy yeah. and, uh, and it's a fucking shocking gore fest. So you come out of that movie after two hours or whatever cut you see of it, you feel like you've lived in that world with these characters. And also the idea of, of, as a kid getting into a mall and fucking around with no one stopping you. Yeah. That's a very exciting proposition. Now it's an old hat. It's been ripped off a million times. Right. A lot of us have never seen a post-apocalyptic film where you could literally run wild in that kind of consumer paradise. We know as we're young, I think we kind of missed the point that Romero's saying, you know, this is actually not heaven. This is hell. They're trapped <laughs> yeah, in yeah. You know, Consumerism Get is them bad. This is, this is not good. Uh, but at the time, it's a, it seemed like a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Which, what's your sort of preferred cut of Dawn? Um, I have a great, I have George's 16 millimeter print of Dawn from the Cannes cut that he brought to, to Toronto in 79. For um, there was a little before it was the Toronto Film Festival, was the Festival of Festivals, and they did a horror spotlight with um, Dario Argento and George. So he came up and brought Dawn, and he left it here. 
And uh, it ended up getting donated to uh, the Brock Library. And through various channels, I ended up inheriting that print. Not, I became good friends with George, but I did not get it from George. I got it right. from someone else posthumously. But I treasure that print. And that's the full cans cut. To me, that's, that may be the de facto way to experience Dawn of the Dead. I've never seen but, it on film. I've only ever seen it at home, yeah. Yeah, but no matter how you cut it, it's a great version of Dawn because there's those moments that were removed, like, you know, Joe Pilato's in Dawn of the Dead. Right. You don't know that if you've seen the direct, the normal director's cut of Dawn because he hacks him out. That whole scene of the dock is gone. So it's jumpy and choppy. So, but it's also missing a lot of the great goblin music. So I was just going to say, yeah. 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 It's hard to say. So it's a toss-up between the, the de facto Romero-approved theatrical two-hour cut and the, the longer <laughs> cans cut for me. I know that there's a mega cut of everything together. That that version doesn't work for me. And I'm not so so sold on the Italian version either, which, as you know, is just an action movie. It takes yeah. out a lot of the flavor. None of that great DeWolf Library music. That's yeah. all gone. Which is such which a I, part of the fabric of that film. Such a part. You're right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love them all. It's all Dawn of the Dead. And it's cool that we can compare them. It's, yeah, it's absolutely. This, this, great, um, this great international legacy, which is so interesting in the history of Dawn. But the Day of the Dead thing, really quickly. So uh, I, I bought the VHS of Day of the Dead in 86. So I was like 11. And it was the Ontario Cut. What they would do, they did this to Chainsaw Massacre too. They just put a sticker on the back with the new running time over it. it this fucking sticker. And Dawn was missing 20 minutes. Our day, our day was missing 20 minutes. And it literally was, there's no gore at all in it. At all. And even Dr. For Tongue, real. they black out his face. So he appears at the credits. You don't see him. You can kind of see something moving, dangling. It's all gone. Every time there's like a piece of gore, it's not even like a smooth cut. It's like... Dun, 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 dun. Oh no! But I still liked it. I thought Bub was cool, so I liked it. Yeah, yeah. But years later, now I'm like 15, uh, 16, 16, and uh, Blockbuster Video had just kind of opened up. We didn't really have Blockbuster when we were kids in Ontario. It came later. Yeah, that's right. And uh, because of that, they were importing American product up here. So Day of the Dead was on the shelf, and I turned it over, and it's like their normal running time. I'm like, hmm. So I rent it take it home. It's like a religious experience because I, now I can see every fucking thing I missed. And it was so much. I couldn't, on my jaw, holy shit, gore, guts, yeah, nonstop carnage. So all I did was take my version of day, take the stickers off their, their version, stick it on my shitty Ontario cut, put my Ontario cut back in the box, keep the full <laughs> cut, and return the Ontario cut. So I'm just, I wonder if it must have happened. Some other hardcore guy ended up renting that. Going, wow, uncut, and then took it home and went, "God damn, it's the same shit." I still have that that stolen uh, version of Blockbuster. That's awesome. Day is such a you know. It's I, I think it was Roger Avery maybe who was talking about you know the the great thing about one of the great things about Day is just like you know George is just like inhibition to just like ask these huge questions and get really philosophical and just like. You know, and I, I, that's the kind of stuff, like, for me, like, it's kind of the top of my list of, of when I think of kind of horror films that, that, that you know, and George having the kind of, I don't want to say the balls to do it, because it wasn't even like that should require balls to do that. But, but there's so few films that I can think of that, that, that will go there, you know what I mean? And like, Day for me was definitely sort of one of the first films I saw that I was like, wow, listen, like, look what, 
this filmmaker is doing in this movie. Like, and yeah, he was, but that's where that's the world he was coming from when people wanted that. They wanted The Exorcist, which had those that subtext. They wanted storytelling. They wanted deep character drawers. They wanted that. They didn't just want to get to the next geek show moment. Yeah. That was something that kind of formed in the 80s when they were, you know, studios thought that dumb teenagers were dumb and they just wanted things boiled down to their essence and then created a generation of kids who just wanted things boiled down to their essence. But <laughs> all George's stuff to that point was like that. I mean, look at Night Riders too. It's so bloated. And it's nothing but these long existential spiritual conversation what a great i think it's george's most personal film yeah uh, that's why i love all that rubenstein stuff up to a point later on when george you know kept soldiering forth he kept getting his wings clipped and i know this from being a friend of george's you know they kept cutting him down and cutting him down and cutting him down as to where he could go with this stuff and just wanted him to deliver the groceries that's why land of the dead i think is a not a failure but doesn't doesn't work as well it's not because it's slick it's because not long enough. Yeah. You know, it starts to develop this world and these characters and these identities. And it doesn't give, it just races to the finish line to get to the big siege. And, and you don't get a chance to really explore that world enough. I think it needed another half an hour, at least, to get into the guts of what George was trying to, uh, to accomplish with that one. Yeah. When I got to know George and, and I worked, he and I worked together on a, we were developing a, a horror Western together. And this was just a few years before George passed away. And, mm. but we, you know, we, George was always, you know, so generous in talking about his work and, and, it, and, it, and it would never, never shut down if you wanted to just, you know, pick his brain about stuff. And it, it was funny because Knight Riders was the one he often sort of wanted to talk about the most. You know what I mean? It was, and it, it was a movie that, uh, for me, like, you know, cause it's not really, it's not a horror film, but, uh, but it's so it's it's such a it's such a George definitive George Romero film. Yes, because it's got all his players in it, and it's it looks like a George movie. It feels like a George film. It's got everybody in it. It's got this you know taking the greatest one of the greatest effects guys of all time, Savini, and giving them this incredible role. That's yeah. absurd. I, it really is to, to me. <laughs> and what a ballsy move to <laughs> makes Dawn of the Dead breaks all the fucking rules, and could have answered it immediately with Dawn of the Dead too. And it goes in left field as Night Riders. I mean, yeah. And, yeah. And suffers for it because it didn't, didn't land. But, um, but my God, he, was, he, had, he had nuts. He did have nuts, George, for sure. And I'm not even sure if that movie, even within sort of the realms of, of George's horror fans, has ever really found its following. You know? No. Yeah. No, no, it's because it is, it's, it's one of those amorphous non genre films. It doesn't really belong anywhere. Like, like the Night Riders themselves, which I find the poetry in it, is that this it's all about these guys trying to search for a home and family and community and belonging and legacy and honor. And, and the movie itself still kind of roaming around the plains, you know, looking for a place <laughs> yeah. to stick. Yeah. And, and no one really quite embraces it, you know? Yeah, that's a great way to look at it, yeah. yeah. Um, so when, would you, when did you first, when was your first published work? Like, when did you start getting your stuff actually published and out there for people to consume? Well, there was a local paper, as you know, called iWeekly. Mm -hmm. And um, they used to have a thing on the back page. First of all, I, I kind of fell in love with this film critic named Gemma Files, who's a friend of mine now. She's a great author. And uh, fell in love with her in the sense that she was, I'd be re reading her reviews, and uh, she was the one championing all the weird shit, you know. And I was like, wow, here's my girl, you know, oh my God. And I wrote into this big rhapsodic. I actually still have the, the fridge. 
the clipping. A um, piece about her, and it was very melodramatic, and I always knew I could write, so was, I had no problem there. And I, at this point, I was probably about 18, 19, something like that. And I weekly published that. So I, if I think about it, this is probably the first thing I was ever published was me raving about Gemma, which is right. funny because years, <laughs> years later, we got became good friends, and I did the score. Was the score for one of her books, which was kind of cool, and then the, the music came with the book. It's called Kissing Carrion. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and so and then we, yeah, I mean, Jim is a good friend. Um, but then because I got that first taste, you know, you get that taste, you're like, ah, I'm published. That's my name. Yeah. So then you want to get more. Then luckily, I also had a thing on the back page where people could write in their stories about living in Toronto and, and funny stories. So I wrote a few funny kind of um, anecdotes about insane adventures I'd had. You know, on public transit, <laughs> they were all published. So I really got a taste of that. And then around that time, I, I, got, I was working for Warner Brothers. And, oh no, backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. I discovered Rue Morgue magazine. Rue Morgue, yeah. It was only issue number two, and I was a hardcore goth at the time. I'm still kind of softcore goth now, but, <laughs> but um, I discovered it for free at this place called Siren on Queen Street. I was like, what the? Because, you know, we didn't have anything like this in, in, in Toronto, in Canada. We didn't have Fangoria, you know, no, there's nothing no. like this. And I open it up and there's a huge article about Tombs of the Blind Dead. I'm like, holy oh, fuck, what, what? And I almost got nailed by a car on Spadina. <laughs> Step off the curb, I'm like, oh, shit. And there was no email or anything at that time. So I run home to where I was living up at Young and Shepherd, And uh, I called the number and I got the voicemail. And I left this long ass voicemail about how I almost got killed. And this magazine's incredible. And I... Sell my soul to be part of this world. And in issue number three, Rod transcribed the whole call and published that. So okay. and it was published in Room Work. And a couple issues after that, started hanging out with those guys and um, started writing reviews for them. And then it was just, it spiraled really, really quickly. Once I got my job at Warner Brothers, suddenly had a real end to all this stuff so I could get the edge of what yeah. was coming next. Yeah. Get connected to all kinds of people that I couldn't get connected to before. You know, kind of driving around Anthony Hopkins to his premiere of Hearts in Atlantis, but be talking to him about magic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, blah, blah, blah. so you're taking notes, <laughs> kind of doing a little fa- impromptu interview right then and there with the guy that normally you'd never get. Sure. That's so, amazing. Really exploiting that and then getting my own column at Room Org and, and uh, helping start their little you know, radio show for a while and, and uh, being a real part of that. So it all came from <coughs> weekly and then eventually being part of the foundation of the uh, that magazine, Rue Morgue. And so you stayed with Rue Morgue for how long? <sighs> yeah, so that was probably two, maybe five years, I think, something like that. Okay. Yeah. And what sort of precipitated you want to kind of move on from Rue Morgue? Rue Morgue was, well, there was always um, a couple things, and this sounds really Groucho Marxy or, or, you know, don't want to be part of any club that would have you as a member, which yeah. I kind of always adhere to. Yeah. But... Um, or Woody Allen, I guess, depending on who, where you hear that quote first. But, right. Um, Rumor was very sceny, quote yeah. unquote. Like, yeah. it was always like, it became this, it started to evolve into how many tattoos you got. The more tattoos <laughs> yeah. you got, the more you know about horror. And you're like, yeah. Just because I got Vincent Price on my left ass cheek doesn't mean I like Vincent Price more than the guy that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, yeah, so I was kind of always kind of like raising a bit of an eyebrow that whole that whole deal and and also Rumorg had a very ended up getting a very locked in manifesto about what they would cover what they wouldn't cover and they started to get a little bit elitist and so I always had my eye on Fangoria because Fangoria was doing set visits and I really wanted to get on sets and meet 
and, and have new entry points into things. They were always like, no, no, reviews, reviews, reviews. I think for a while they called it, people would dub it review morgue. It was always reviews. And so I, um, I started sending stuff to Tony Timpong mm-hmm. and uh, like he kept sending it back. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm like, ah, fuck. At that point, I had quite a body of work. Yeah. But then uh, it was George. You know, he came to shoot um, Diary of the Dead up here. Yeah. And uh, he, he was living here, I guess. <laughs> At the time, he, had, he was with Suzanne. Yeah. After land. And uh, I went back to Fango and I said, look, my, my friend was the unit publicist. And I said, look, he's shooting this up here. They didn't even know. And uh, I said, I can get on set every day. I, you know, and they said, Fango or Rue Morgue? Fango. Fango. And, and then Tony said, great. Okay, you're our guy. Go do it. So then I secretly did that. I didn't tell Rue Morgue I was doing it. Okay. I, cover, I covered uh, Diary of the Dead for them. And, you know, they wanted like seven articles. You know, they wanted cast articles, effects. They, you know, crazy shit. So the income was fantastic but also the opportunities to really dive deep into this and uh, spend a lot of time with George, you know, going out multiple interviews with George. So it was a really satisfying, creative experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, uh, Tony said, look, we want you to be our Toronto correspondent. You know, Michael, um, oh my God, good, good friend of mine, uh, the writer, Michael, ah! he was the Fango guy at the time. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, man, I can't believe I'm I'm on I think I know who you're talking about. Michael, I'm Michael, too. Michael, Michael Rowe, Michael Rowe, Michael Rowe. Rowe, the author, Michael Rowe. Yes. He had, at that point, decided to pursue writing full time. So he was backed off and of being Toronto correspondent. So I inherited that. So I became the okay. Toronto guy. And um, long story short, I was doing that. And then Rod at Remort found out and said, fuck Fango, blah, blah, blah. You're, our, you're one of our personalities. You're our personality. We have a column. You're on the radio. You can't do both. And I was like, I just had a new kid, my first child at the time. I'm like, man, I, I'm just a writer. I got to work. Yeah. You know, I yeah. said, I, some of your other guys do both just because they don't have a column. So if that's the case, then you got to maybe pay me more to be more of like a salaried guy. And then of course I'll, he's like, we can't do that. And I said, well, I don't know what to do. He's like, you got to make a choice. I said, okay, bye. Yeah. And then I went to, went to Fango and it was the right move because yeah. for, for a long time they hated me. Rumor hated me. I was, I was like cut out of their history. I still Outcast, yeah. Yeah. But um, I was, you know, once you start to kind of get your own person, that cult of personality yourself, you start to maybe feel a little bigger than your britches were. Yeah. And yeah, um, and yeah I'm, I'm partially responsible for that bad breakup. But yeah, I wasn't, I just didn't, yeah, I, got, I got a bad vibe. I, mean, I, love, I love that they exist and that they're in Toronto and that we have something like that. I love all those things. But I have also always thought, you know, to your point of like, when people do that thing, it, you know, for me, horror was always part of the fun of it and going to conventions and stuff was the misfit quality of it. You know, this sort of island of misfit toys aspect of being a genre fan and and kind of not being, you know, the cool kid and just like being shitty to someone because they liked a different kind of thing than you were. And, and when it gets to that, or like, oh, you like that kind of horror. Well, that's so mainstream. Like, fuck it. You like, you know, oh, you you like Rob Zombie. That's so whatever, that kind of thing. I'm like, that's you're kind of losing part of the appeal to me of what it is to be a you know a cool horror fan a proper horror fan not the kind of person who's a dick because someone likes something that maybe isn't your cup of tea or like you know no so i mean the, the key to all that is just to like what you like and not yeah like say no guilty pleasures and to not give a shit what anybody else thinks i mean and, and that's why i you know i was a critic for a long time <laughs> using the platform sometimes as comedy to deconstruct the movies that I thought were bad 
and to make sport of them. And then getting older and wiser and realizing how fucking irresponsible all that shit was. <laughs> how much it takes to make a film. Yeah. And also that, that a film, so what if I hate it or, or it doesn't matter. Somebody likes it and time will prove me right or wrong anyways. I'm irrelevant. I'm nothing. Why am I going to waste my time on this shit? On hurting somebody or hurting a product that uh, time won't care about the, uh, what I say at all. So I, I literally remove myself from being, I still write film criticism, but I only write about things that I, I really love. Yeah. And can, and can, can deconstruct and can find, or things that I like that have great moments in them that I can kind of pull out. Right. I think if you're a horror fan, it's all about those moments, it's not about the necessarily the whole package. It's about finding those sublime moments that you can yank yeah. out and go, wow. You know? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Thank God we're not cool kids. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's like when you, when you got the, the, the gig at, at Fango as the editor, like that must have been, you know, that's kind of a dream job. If like you talked about, you're one of those kids who grew up on Fango, you know, in our case, taking it out of the porn rack and, you know, hiding it in a comic, behind a comic book or some other magazine. Like, you know, for me, I remember like hunting for Fangos because I grew up in Mississauga and like, it was hard to find Fango. Like there was so, Especially so in, the in the 90s, it was like brutal. Brutal. Find it. The only place I could find it was at my girlfriend's cottage in Calworthus in this shitty marina. Some, in the summers, I'd look forward to it because we'd get out there and they'd always have, and every time I'd buy it, there'd be an old guy there going, sorry, you're buying the funny book, huh? <laughs> but it was the only place, it was so weird. You couldn't find it anywhere else. It was that's crazy. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was like, so I remember, you know, and I think that's, again, it was part of the, the fun of it for me was like hunting it down. And I finally found this like random convenience store in some strip mall somewhere in Mississauga that would always have it. And the guy there started to just set it aside for me and I'd come in and pick it up. And, and it was like, you know, it was the only way I could find out about, you know, all these movies that we weren't getting or some of the really, and Full Moon, you talk talking about Full Moon, like, it wasn't that readily available in a lot of the video stores in Mississauga either, the, the full moon titles. So I, you know, I remember there was one video store uh, and because the, the jumbo near me didn't, they got a, the odd full moon title, but they weren't bringing in every full moon movie. And I, I got hooked. I was a member of video, the, the full moon member. I had my fan card, which I still have. Wow. All that stuff. Like, and you know, in, in Canada in general, like full moon didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends who knew about it. they, you know, they were talking about their favorite actors, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm like, Tim Thomerson. It was like, who the fuck is that? Um, and so it's funny to me, like, you know, you, you think of like that Fango is the place, though, where you all kind of that got brought together in a way where if you wanted to know the what's what of horror, that was where it was. So when you took that over, was that kind of like, you know, one of those checklist moments in life where you're like, this is something I always would have loved. To it wasn't, it wasn't even a checklist. I wouldn't even have put it on the checklist. Right. Because... You know, writing for them is one thing. <laughs> that was on the checklist. Yeah. You know, being part of that, being the guy who has 100% creative control over it, not even there in the realm of human possibility. And it was really so fucking random. Well, not random. I mean, I was... Look, the publisher, they went into chapter 11 at some point. And... Um, was that Starlog? Was that... No, well, Starlog was just part of the company. It was all... Okay. The, the, the company, I think it was... What they called the creative group or something. Anyways, okay. they went they went bankrupt. They they tried to blast everything they had Fango TV, and I was part of that too. I did some Fango TV stuff, and and but they, I knew it. I was like, these guys are doing too fucking much. You know, look, we're having trouble finding Fango on newsstands. How can they just be remain solvent? 
And sure enough, they weren't. They died. But a guy named Tom DeFeo bought them out of Chapter 11. He was part of this company that had killed it. And he bought it. And, um, you know, Tom was... I mean, I quit Fango because of Tom. Not because okay. I don't like Tom as a person, but because he was the single worst businessman I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> right. Suicidal. It's not even, I don't even know how it's funny. It's almost sociopathically awful wow. businessman. And he was literally, it was like a basketball play. We'd be making the play and it was fucking perfect. We had a dream team. And me, Becca McKendrick, Bill Mahali, Mike Gingle, boom, boom, boom. And he'd hand it to him and drop the ball. He wouldn't pay any of his bills. The mag would sit on the, on the blocks at the, at the, uh, at the fucking printer and wouldn't ship to stores. And it was like a very small amount of money. He just kept getting deeper and deeper, but he wouldn't sell the brand. Rob Zombie tried to buy it from us. Like everyone tried to buy it. We tried to sell it to people. He, he wouldn't sell it because he was adamant that he was going to be a millionaire making movies with the Fango name. Mm-hmm. So he didn't give a shit about the mag. And, and so his lack of care about what was going on gave me 100% control to do anything I wanted for six years which was amazing. But at what cost? I mean, sometimes I wouldn't get paid. Sometimes I'd be paying for it myself, a magazine myself to get printed. And you just had to <laughs> kind of let that go. Mm-hmm. So getting the job <laughs> was um, come, Tom coming out of this thing going, this company's in trouble. Tony's been here since Christ was a carpenter. We got to get him out of the way. I like what this guy's doing. I was doing a blog for them for free just so I could have a, a name on there for something to do. And uh, Tom thought, well, this guy's interesting. Are you interested? I said, of course I'm fucking interested. And it was literally like that. So my entry point came in because of one man's not knowing what to do next. Right. So it was all serendipitous and it had its pluses and minuses. But that six years was like anything, like nothing else. It was a a first uh, front lines experience on how to run and not run a company. It was, uh, I had more adventures in those six years than I'd had probably my entire life jammed in, into all that stuff. It raised my profile insanely. It, it gave me so many more opportunities, but it also, you know, partially dismantled my then marriage. I mean, there was all kinds of things that it was doing that were absolutely toxic. Uh, and a lot of that was because the fail. He was just a monster when it came to Dell. So I, yeah, so it was a bucket list and it was, I would not change a minute of that. I'm so proud of the shit I, we did with that magazine. Some of the covers I got away with, the controversies about yeah. those covers, uh, the people I met, the adventures, and um, it's, it's just insane. I'm still unearthing hard drives and, and with interviews I've done with people I forgot I even met. I mean, it's just endless. Uh, but yeah, it almost fucking killed me. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, speaking of full moon, my man Charlie Band stepped in during the last year of my, my life with Fango and and I invented Delirium Magazine with Charlie. And then I've been, you know, working at Full Moon for yeah. years now. And it's the best. I mean, he's the best. You hear a lot of stuff about Charlie being this pirate producer. Whatever experiences he's had, it's a negative in his life to um, maybe not do so well. <laughs> I think he's learned. Because he's the best boss I've ever had. Best co- collaborator I've ever had. Best colleague. Best movie dad. Uh, he's just he's just one of the greatest. Uh, he's a living legend. He's an icon, but he's also one of the greatest humans I've ever known. That's great. So to hear full, that, yeah. full Moon's been a blast, and then I've gotten to direct, write, and direct a, a bunch of Full Moon movies, which which is, is awesome. Fucking which crazy. Is, yeah, which is. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend. Uh, I'm sure you know Brooks Davis. Uh, oh yeah, Brooks is a is a fucking hero, man. I yeah. love Brooks, man. He's so such a great dude. 
And like when I first was getting to know Brooks, which just happened because I was, I try to remember, I used to, so when I was like a pretty young kid, I don't know, 13, 14, I was running Full Moon's early website. Oh, wow. And so Bob Langer would send me product. Bob's still still there. I know, which is crazy. Like when I kind of came back around sort of full circle and and I did sort of years later, I sort of was like, what the hell's going on with Charlie and Full Moon? And that's how I became friends with Brooks. But I, I I was amazed to find that Bob was still there, but he used to send me everything. Like, you know, I had a Dr. Mordred standee that took up like half my bedroom when I was uh, that age. And I, you know, and I would just, they didn't pay me anything. They just sent me all the, and that, that was product. That was what I was getting that's, paid. That's coin of the realm right there. I was sure. more yeah. than happy to do yeah. that. Yeah, I had all every variant of all the, the full moon toys. It just, it was all... Like to Amazing. me, it was the yeah, it was the best gig I ever had at that time, and and for years after that, it was still that, and it was like you know, and I only got to meet Charlie like over the phone because I interviewed him a couple times for the website, but Charlie's such a give, he was so giving, he's such a nice, and he you could just feel that his love of what he does, and you know what I mean, and I and it's so amazing to me to this day, I think Charlie is still that person, you he know, is, what I, mean? I always say he's a perpetual twelve year old, yeah, um, he has more energy in his little finger than most people do in their entire makeups. I mean, he's just, he's constantly moving. He's constantly on the go. He's constantly inventing. He's got a tireless mind. I mean, some of that, if you're going to be critical, you can say maybe he should slow down, focus a little more, but why? That's who he is at this point. Who gives a shit? He's having fun. He's creating, he's breaking the rules. And he's just, he's just, Listen, I read his book. It's all I can say to people is that yeah, I, I, it was great. Yeah, I love I love that he I love that he wrote a book. I was like, <laughs> it was one of those people. I was like, Charlie Band better put a fucking book out. He re- like you know they they had a book about Empire that came was a pretty good sized book. Yeah, yeah, but it was, was very great. derogatory. That, that it was had, yeah, kind of pissed I, I me off. I felt like they were it was very dismissive of the films and critical of them. absolutely. I'm like, that's your opinion. Is why are you being shitting on like bullies too? I mean, stop. Why did you make this book then? I know why. <laughs> if, you, if you think these are so shit, these movies, why are you bothering? Yeah, I, I, I never understood the angle of that, that that book at all. It's such a strange thing to me because you know it's clearly a a, a a certain amount of labor goes into producing a book of that size, and you mm-hmm. know, to do that when you clearly have uh, pretty mixed feelings about the the content is like that's a strange thing to me because I I love. The, all the empire. For, I mean, almost. I don't think there's a single empire movie I don't have some degree of affection for on some level. Me too. Like yeah, I, I'm an I'm an empire guy. That was my full moon stuff. I could take or leave at the at the time, but uh, empire was my baby for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every, the destruction of Jared Sin and all this great stuff. Like Another great and, one. If you see it in 3D, is you know the movie is what it is what it is, but the seeing 3D is just fucking incredible. Yeah, yeah, no, that's all that stuff is great. So going back, going back to Fango, like, um, what were some of your goals when you took over at Fango? Like, what when you started the magazine as the editor, what were some things that you sort of set out to do with it that you wanted to change or? or... Well, I was I was sick of you know as a writer for Fango, I wasn't a reader of Fango anymore. I got sick of um, Jason and Freddie. I mean, I got I got burnt out on all the samey samey stuff. And then at that point too, Tony was trying to, you know they kept trying to hit on what was new and hot when the internet was trumping them at every turn and their fan base was going, what? So when they're putting Twilight on the cover and they're trying to hit that demographic, Spider-Man they're never going to yeah. find, they're never going to, there's neither feast nor, nor, nor famine with these guys because mm-hmm. they're never going to fucking hit, hit it. It's never going to work. And it didn't. 
And and the hardcore fans were out of there and their Twilight guys didn't want to pick up Fangoria. So what's the point? So um, first thing I wanted to do is just do what I was doing at Rue Morgue in some respects. You know, I was the schizoid cinephile columnist there, you know, and that was my free column to just dig up weird, cool treasures from the past and things I had found and maybe movies that weren't getting a fair shake, I thought, like Ghosts of Mars or something, you know, and, and putting it out forefront and all the great visionaries I thought were out there and, and stories that could be told that defied the, the traditional narrative of what horror could be or was. And also go back to my love of Fangoria, which was, was Uncle Bob's Fango, you know, which, you know, <coughs> we say it's Fango number nine with Motel Hell on the front. I guess it's a coveted issue. Everyone's looking for it because it's very rare. But I think I have it. <coughs> that issue's got, yeah, Motel Hell. It's got an article on Jack Kirby, Thunder of the Barbarian. It's got um, this like seven page article about Andre Toth who directed House of Wax. And, but it was a pen pal letters he was writing with another guy over the span of two years, how they communicated. That's how they did their interview. Mm-hmm. He's mailing letters back and forth. Um, it was just filled with every bit of esoteric weird shit you could imagine. It was a roller coaster <laughs> ride. And Fango to me at that point, when you read it, as much as I love doing set visits, I didn't need like a 10-page set visit about the box. So my, my version was to come in immediately, tighten and crunch up the articles, and put, make it more about um, the personalities, the architects of the genre, give it a sense of fun without being elitist, you know, to try to find that middle ground language that would be a great entry point for new people that were interested in horror, but also not insult the elder gods. And maybe give them something new to chew on. Or even to get angry about. It doesn't matter. Just to involve everybody. And have a certain type of writing that was fun and fast, but not too hip and flippant. You know, just to find that middle ground science. Uh, Sometimes it was self-indulgent, you know, because I'm a huge Kiss fan. And to me, one of the greatest stories is Gene Simmons coming from Haifa and uh, Israel as a little boy and not being able to speak the language and learning everything he needs to know about the language and the culture through horror films and, uh, and inventing this, co-inventing this band that was completely based on his love of Godzilla, Lon Chaney, Frankenstein, everything, all, all his monsters, which he carried with him his entire life, literally discovering the American dream with horror movies. And so I'm like, well, he's my, he's my first monster. I discovered Gene Simmons as a little boy. He was my first vampire because he had fangs in the cover of Love Gun. I'm like, holy shit, who's this guy? So um, I found out Gene was a fan of the mag and, and I called him up and he said, come to the house. So I came to the house and we spent uh, the day together. And then Paul Stanley found out I was going to Gene's house, maybe got a bit jealous. So he said, come to my house now. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> I go over to his house. And anyways, and then I became really good friends with, with those guys and published the official Kiss magazine for like 10 years too. But it was always about putting things out of left field on the cover, but then having to justify them and put my own personality as to why I think they should be there. And a lot of times it pissed people off. I mean, that Gene Simmons cover, Pissed a lot of people off and didn't get it. People that did get it loved it. And even some people that didn't get it went came back to me later and said, yeah, but that interview was fucking banging. You know, that was like, I really kind of get it now. I put uh, like Black Swan on the cover because I thought that was a really, that was a great, now we recognize it as a horror film that wasn't really recognized as one at the time. And I got a lot of hate about that. Nicolas Cage putting him on the cover, calling him a master of horror. Tongue was partially in cheek, but I always thought that Nick Cage was a living, breathing expressionist film uh, actor, performer. I thought he was like Conrad Veidt in color. And so I spent a lot of time with him and did this huge two-part cover thing. 
And I got raked over the coals for that too. Now, Nick Cage is a fucking master of horror. Right? <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, I was he's, just going to say, he's you're like ahead of the curve on that. He's royalty now. Yeah, but at totally. the time, it was like, no, they didn't, didn't kind of get it. Um, so, <clears throat> long story short, and Jess Franco, you know, I love all John Roland, just is it putting more, and more sexuality too. I, I, yeah. I appreciated something a little earthier and sexier. Not just I remember, that. I think I read when I was researching for our interview today that, that you put a, a, a porn ad in Fango and that that was, uh, that's true. Yeah. There was, um, I forget what the movie was. It, it was, I think it was a Peaches Christ movie. It's called All About Evil. I think. And so there was, there was a scene, a, a really juicy bit of gore with the girl getting her breasts ripped off. And it was really gr- a gross effect. You could see the outlines of the prosthesis, but the, the holes that it was left with like, like yellow or pussy kind of stuff coming out. It was really gross. <laughs> And she was screaming, <sighs> but adjacent to that, we had a, an ad deal. Becca, Becca was our McKendry was our ad sales. That was that was her comp, the function of Fango, and she sold uh, a deal with Adam and Eve. <coughs> so there was a very small ad adjacent to that tits being ripped off picture that showed a girl in a bikini, just saying, you know, like buy three porns, get one free. So I don't know, whatever it was, and um, shit, man, the hate mail. I got <laughs> not because of those tits being ripped off. I mean, guys, my, my son reads this magazine and blah, 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 blah. And it was just like, wow, that is crazy. So you're totally cool with, with your son seeing a woman's breast being removed. But, but the notion of watching people have sex, that's Yeah, too and much. not even. It's just like a woman in a bikini mentioning that here's a, something they could order if they... I mean, it was just... Um, it was a bit of an eye opener, that's for sure. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was something we didn't experience with, with Room Org because Room Org was not just because it was Canadian, but because it was kind of, it was a new magazine and had a new wave of fans and followers that weren't as, um, you know, American uh, apple pie and ice cream kind of yeah. people. Yeah. And, and Fango was hitting the wide demographic in middle America. And, and so it was a lot more puritanical. And so that was a bit of an eye opener. And I always ran, I always got weird. And it was always the letters that you would get, the hate mail, the really angry, I'm going to kill you hate mail, was always handwritten, which I found really interesting. <laughs> always fucking handwritten. Because people and need to get lot, something I, I out in that scribbling, yeah. <laughs> totally, I kept a, kept a lot of that shit. That's yeah. great. Um, you've interviewed a lot of, you know, beloved genre personalities and, uh, I, you know, and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but just for listeners who may not have heard uh, th- this anecdote a thousand times, um, what were some of your favorite, like most interesting interviews? And then inversely, can you think of an interview that went awry where some, you know, the person was just not pleasant or where they were resistant or something of that nature? I think I'm a good enough interviewer that I can always find something and I know when to hold them and when to fold them. And I'm good at body language. So I know when somebody doesn't like what I'm asking, I know how to turn it around. Right. I can't say I've had an actively horrible interviewing experience. Um, at a convention once, I had to do a Q&A. They asked me to do a Q&A with Tony Todd, Tyler Maine, and it was a Derek Mears. I don't know. It was the stupidest thing together. It's like, what do these three fuckers have in common? <laughs> They're all tall. Yeah, I mean, that's weird. It's like they have no, like Tony Todd is a guy you want to sit down and talk about, you know, making Clint Eastwood's bird or something. Like his career is so insane. Yeah, and Tyler May, who gives it? Those guys are stuntmen playing stuntmen. I mean, like it's like it doesn't. It's like what am I? We all same. together. Yeah, but I had to try to keep this together. 
and they were fucking dicks. I guess they didn't get paid that day or something. Tony Todd was a complete fucking asshole. They were all assholes together. So it's three dick swinging assholes trying to fucking make me look like shit and treat the fans like shit. And I'm trying uh, to be fucking pro up there with this mic. Hey, everybody. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, so, Tony, what do you do? Like, in your off time, how do you prepare for some of this uh, shit? He's, like, he's looking at me. He's like, well, I like to paint. I'm like, you paint? He's like, he's like, paint the little birds. And, that, and he started being really facetious and sarcastic and trying to make me look like an asshole. And I was just like, mother, I'm like, I'm like, I'm doing this for free. I, why am I up here? I've walked with fucking giants, not talking tall giants. I'm talking giants, creative giants. And I'm suffering through this, these two stuntmen and this asshole. And, and I was this close to dropping that mic and just saying, fuck, fuck you. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't, I pushed through, came out of there, was pissed off, went to the bar. Yeah. But that was probably the worst one, but that wasn't for anything published or anything that I yeah. actually set out yeah. to do. I don't think I ever had a bad one. I've had a few boring ones. Like there was a movie called Sorority Row, I think it was called. Yeah. It was a remake that. of the house in Sorority Row. Yeah. And rumor Willis was in it. Yeah. And she was wonderful. I mean, she was, her and I got along like, like that. And um, <clears throat> just a joy. And then the other a- actor in there was from the show The Hills. I think it was Adrena Partridge, I think was her name. Uh-huh. And that was like, I might as well have been interviewing this mug. <laughs> this picture of Gary Coleman is more interesting than that young lady was in that interview. And I had like, okay, you got half an hour. I'm like, great. Five fucking minutes in, I was like, well, I think, we're, I think we got all we need. Yeah. Peace. And I yeah. just, I bailed. I mean, yeah. it, it, very cordially, but there was just nothing there. God bless her. Yeah. But as far as like, um, really like bad ones, um, I can't, I can't think of any no, bad that's, ones. That's good enough. That's, a, you know, that's, a, I mean, I can think of the interviews that I've done and, and I've never had, well, I had one with an actor who was absolutely wasted and that was problematic because they were throwing up through the whole thing and it was oh just, my god you, you know you can't tell me who that is right no <laughs> i can i'll tell you i'll tell you off this off yeah yeah okay. yeah um so that was interesting <laughs> and and difficult because later when you know I, I had a recorder and when i was trying to kind of write i was like I, it was so hard to understand this actor because they were slurring so badly that i was, I was like I don't know how I'm going to salvage this fucking thing. And I had to just go and be like, I don't know how we're going to make anything of this. Cause it's it's so instead it was like, well, do you think, is there an anecdote to tell this? I was like, that might not go over well. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's tempting to do. It's tempting to do. I know. Yeah. I've had like retroactive bad experiences where I've been, had a great interview or been friends with somebody. And then suddenly they want creative control of the article afterwards or something. Like I've had, and I'm not going to name names, but, there's a few, and it tends to be something um, I found, and I hate to typecast, but um, actresses of a certain vintage who are hot at a certain point, maybe not so much anymore, but no one's told them that yet. Right. And sometimes their egos are, are just out of control. And I've had this one in particular, she was, I considered her a good friend. Not anymore. It was the most miserable experience I've ever had. But that was post-interview. Right. That was her trying to muscle in there and control everything that was going on. And, um, but as far as good interviews go, I mean, I've had too many. Too many yeah. amazing. But, you know, from Gene Simmons, they, you know, not just interviewing Nicolas Cage, but <clears throat> he's like, come to my island in the Bahamas and make us lunch. I'm like, sure. <laughs> just jump on a fucking plane, stay in a shit yeah. hotel and get a boat taking you to Cage's island. And then, you, and then throw in a party for him in Idris Elba in New York like a month later. I mean, it's just like uh, for Ghost Rider 2. Yes, yeah. I want you to throw this party. I don't want everyone to wear black. And I'm, I'm like, okay. 
You know, your, your Nick Cage uh, is on point, Chris. You like that? You know? Yeah, Dude, yeah. He liked it too. He's yeah, like, that's it's very, very good. good. That's yeah. great. But, <laughs> it um, is good. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Steele, another one, her and I, and it's like, it's always the ones where you become, because I remember as a kid, I hate it, I always hated convention, and I own this convention, co own it, but Horrorama. Horrorama, yeah. But I've always like hated conventions because I've always found them disingenuous ways to meet your people you want to, yeah. artists, you know, yeah. you just take a number. And I never wanted to be part of that world. But I always thought, if I meet this person, I want to sit down with them and have a fucking beer. Yeah. I want to talk. I want to ask them the questions I want to ask. And I've been lucky enough to all my heroes have that opportunity to literally take them out somewhere, spend that time with them, and not just develop um, a good, great piece, but develop friendships and ongoing relationships with them that carried right till sometimes when they died. Like I was the first guy to speak at George's funeral, you know, which is a bittersweet, a great, amazing pinch me thing that I'm up there before Nicotero, but the, you know, bittersweet because like, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be there, yeah. but I was because George became a really good fucking friend, which I never would have imagined in a million years. So yeah. I've been very, very lucky to, to, to know these people, to meet these people, have great content, great published stuff. And also uh, good human relationships with them. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you talk about, you know, the the, the that problem with conventions, and I always felt the same way. Like for me, um, you know, is I always enjoyed going to conventions to to buy stuff to get mm. shit. Like it was fun to go to the vendors, and you know, sometimes you'd find cool things that you were missing that were part of your collection. I enjoyed that part. But the thing to me of like paying someone to sign something, or I was like, that's ex- there's nothing about that that makes it fun to should display it or to, you know what I mean? To me, it was like, if I have a picture with someone, I want it to be because we went out and had a drink together or we worked together on something or, you know, I mean, I, it, when I finally got to work with um, Dean Cundy, who was, who was the hero of mine, like, you know, it was, you know, I, I was so glad that I had had this opportunity to go to, to a convention thing where he was speaking. I was like, no, I don't want to, that's not how I want to do it. And so when I finally got to work with him and I got, we became friends and I got to know, I was like, I'm glad I didn't kind of, I it, I wouldn't have spoiled anything, I guess, but it's just, you're right. It's that it's, there's something not legit about that experience. If it's like you stand in line and then you pay. Well, yeah. Cause it's curated and it's transactional. But when That's you're right. Them, you're meeting them as people. And so you get to know them as people first and then you start asking the questions. Yeah. And then you're, but you're asking them from a general, a really, you know, an honest point of being just genuinely interested in wanting to learn from them and, and then they become comfortable with you and they start asking you questions, which That's is interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Cundy, what did you do with Cundy? I mean, he's one of the greats. I, mean, uh, I did a, a, a pilot called Lineage, which nice. was, yeah, it was, uh, we had a great cast too. It was um, uh, Michael Trucco was the lead in it. And then it starred uh, William Sadler, Tom Atkins, D. Wallace, Laurie Herring. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it was a great experience. I had the it was probably the most fun experience I've ever had as a filmmaker because it was like it was the easiest shoot, man. When you have Dean Cundy, like it just the crew was incredible. It was so just the actors all came to play and were old like and 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 Tom and Bill who played brothers in the in the, in the piece were they're said they're very different actors, so like their their way of approach it was like polar opposite. But it was hilarious the way they kind of worked off of each other because they found immediately this way to kind of make it work, you know. And Tom was playing this kind of Vincent Price, as he called it, delicious evil character. And Bill was playing this sort of haunted mute. And But in reality, their personalities were almost swapped. Like, Bill was like 
funny and chatty and just he would turn it off the second i would call cut bill was back to joking around tom would like sort of still be figuring out and working through it and you know like he got really pissed at me because somebody sent him the wrong draft of a scene and he came to me and uh, and, and we're doing the we're doing the scene and i hear him i'm like fuck he's saying the old line so i had to kind of pull him aside and be like oh, i think someone there's been a mistake here and he was fucking pissed. And I'm like, oh, man, shit. I'm getting chewed out by, you know, Tom Atkins right now. And then immediately, like, he uh, just chilled out and calmed down. And we worked it out. But but Dean is like, you know, and and to this day, you know, Dean is, is, is a good friend. And we've worked together on a bunch of different projects since. And, you know, I've learned probably more than I have from anyone from working with, with Dean Gunn. Just, I mean, he knows every trick in the book. You know, and he takes a shot and and he just knows the littlest tweak that takes it from being good into great. And um, I mean, and then, yeah, I mean, there's a reason those those John Carpenter movies with him are the best act because they, they really are. He doesn't get enough credit for that shit. Even no. going back to like one of my favorite exploitation movies is The Witch Who Came From the Sea and he shot that. And that movie is fucking beautiful. It, you know, and he really, well, he won, he won a pro. He wasn't Dean Cundy then, but he still knew what, where the hell to put that camera. And how to create illicit mood and atmosphere out yeah. of the shot. Yeah, when we were shooting, I remember like, a, you know, a quick anecdote, but like there was this shot we had where where Michael Truco's character comes walking into this old house and the premise of the movie basically was Dee Wallace plays his mom and she is, her character is a serial killer and he finds out after she's died that, that his mother was a serial killer and he comes back to the house to try and dig up anything he can to sort of, you know, displace this notion of his past he had to figure out who his family really was and how how this could have been the case and so he comes into the house and it was an old house and we shot right in in like the hollywood hills and we had this great old sort of craftsman house for the location and he comes in and and dean used like a hazer and because we wanted it to have this feeling of just dusty a place that you know was just filled with memories and and it looked beautiful the shot was incredible with the dean had this great thought of putting the camera up right where this sort of bizarre chandelier was so that the chandelier was sort of be dangling in front of the shot. So when he comes in, the wind would move it a bit. And it was all this stuff just to, and we're looking at it and, and I'm like, oh, this looks great. He's like, you're happy with it? I'm like, yeah, it looks great. And I'm just about to clock. He goes, wait, wait, hold on a second. I was like, what's up? He's like, I just, just give me five minutes. And he himself, and remember Dean at this point is 70, jumps off this little like, uh, ladder thing he was on that he that he often would stand on beside the camera and and he runs over and he goes give me this give me that and he comes over and he sort of himself rigs up this thing with a piece of fabric and it was all he did was put in front of this light and it was kind of like this doily sort of fabric and it just put this little soft texture on the wall that you saw when michael's character came in and it changed the whole shot amazing it took amazing. a shot from being like a great shot to be one of those shots where like, fuck, that's just, Amazing. and I just looked, I was like, how detail. did you even think of, he's like, I just needed something. And I was like, see, that's <laughs> the shit you get when you work with someone who's, you know, been around and who's had the chance to develop, but is also just such a talent, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. I've, I've, I've worked with some young DPs and it's just like some of the really talented people, but, but they haven't done, you know, and they're not resourceful enough. That's the that's problem. It. They, that's they don't they don't know how to pull these kind of DIY tricks out of their ass to make things better. They're sitting they're sitting there trying to figure out the software hack to make yeah. it better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Or the you know their background is like music videos and stuff. And it's right, like, right, right. You know, it's just a different thing. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, okay, so um, let's move forward here. This is. A, by the way, it's fun because you, you, these tangential things we can. I mean, I could I could do this all day, Chris. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, 
so I was thinking too, like, you know, thinking about your, your, your tenure at Fango and just like, you know, for me, like at, at being a person who read the magazine at the time and seeing how the magazine changed and stuff when you were there and, um, you know, and, and, and I, and I, I thought, it, you know, it was noticeable. It was noticeable the way the magazine changed. It, it became a very different thing and a thing that, that I think kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say was, was, was like, it was a thing for me where I remember being like, cool, now there's, we're getting back to some of the movies that I, I had hoped we would get to talk about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, and, and it, but when you stepped down in, was it 2015? Yeah, last issue I did had um, Elvira on the cover, I think. Okay. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember like having that concern. I'm like, I wonder, I hope whoever is going to take over won't kind of switch this to being just another glossy PR, like just promoting the hottest new fucking Hollywood horror movie or whatever. Um, but it was awesome because then you went and, and, and you and Charlie started up Delirium, which to me is... Yeah, and, F- and Fango died. I, I swear I left. It was like, uh, I told DeFeo, I said, you know, I'm, I'm out. And I was very nice to him. He's like, well, who do you think should be the next guy then? Who should... And I said, well, it has to be Gingle because he's been sitting here uh, waiting for this forever. Paid his dues kind of thing, And yeah. poor Mike, I mean, he, he they brought him in and they he put together this issue. I think he put Victor Frankenstein, the new movie. Because Mike's all about the new stuff, so he put that new thing on there. And uh, they made this magazine, and again, DeFeo never printed it. He printed 10 issues of it so he could lie to the, the advertisers and say, hey, the mag came out, now fucking pay us now. So oh, that he no. could get that money to pay the printer to actually pay for the printing of the mags. It was all absolutely insidious. So there was 10 issues Jeez. of that issue printed and they're going for insane amounts of money if you can find one. I think it's issue three, <laughs> 316. Otherwise, never, it doesn't exist. And then, uh, and then to fail, fires Gingle. Good. I mean, Gingle died. There's nothing left. And then um, maybe they did one more or two digital issues and then it, it fucking died. It right. went to sleep for years until the new guys took it over. But yeah, I knew that was coming anyways. I was like on the ship and I could see all the rats jumping off my... I ain't sticking. I'm getting the hell so out of here. Charlie yeah. and I had actually started Delirium a year before I left Fang. Okay. I was running them concurrently, developing them at, at the developing at the same time. And brought brought um, Bill Mahali, who was the designer from Fango, and prior to that had done all the Warren stuff like Vampirella, creepy, eerie, famous monsters. Been in this game since the early seventies. Yeah. I think um, you know, Frank Frazetta was at his wedding. You know, he was part of that 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 world. So I brought him, so and uh, Gingle became my copy editor. So it was exactly the same team, anyways, doing Delirium that was doing my run of Fango. And it, like, I'm curious, like, I mean, in, in the time frame you've been working, you know, as a writer, uh, you know, doing <coughs> editorial and reviews and stuff, like, you know, a lot has changed throughout, you know, in terms of just I don't know, social media and blogs and you know, all these different platforms now that, you know, and then and the way that anybody can kind of have a, a platform to, to say their bid. What do you think are sort of, sort of the pluses and minuses of, of all these changes and developments in the way that people can, you know, sort of engage now about, about the genre? Um, well, as you say, it's pluses and minuses. I can probably have an equal tier list of both. Um, you know, the old the old saying that, you know, just because you do have a platform to speak doesn't mean you should be speaking yeah. at all. Um, there's obviously a huge component of that out there. Um, but then again, it comes down to 
Okay, let's back, just back it up a little bit. Facebook, I don't, I'm not on Twitter anymore. I can't stand it. It's a fucking, it's a, it's a cesspool. Neither I can't am I. Stand yeah. the, I can't stand <laughs> the trying to communicate. I'm, I'm, I'm a talker and I'm, I like to communicate. I can't stand the one line or the little few lines. I don't like all that. I hate the cool kids' whole philosophy we were talking about. And I find everybody on Twitter is just trying to be on one, on the right, the winning side. And fighting on the internet is the most obnoxious, fruitless pursuit. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't want any fucking part of that. Plus, yeah. today's drama is tomorrow's anecdote. I try not to get hung up on the zeitgeist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I like things that are timeless. So bye-bye. But things like um, Facebook and Instagram have helped me connect with a lot of people, you know, through the years. And I think they're dynamite promotional t- t- tools to make sure people know what you're up to. I also think they're dynamite ways for families to stay in touch, friends to stay in touch. You know, if they're used properly, like anything in life, used well of great benefit, but can be misused, and they are. But then it comes down to the individual to self-moderate yeah. and only get themselves as involved as they want to get involved. So, um, you know, I'm at, I'm at the stage now. The only thing I, I used to share pictures of my kids, no, my walls are high now. I, I went through a bad period with some stalkers and shit. And uh, really fucking bad. That's a whole conversation. And so I don't do that anymore. I don't share a lot about my personal life at all. I just talk about what movies I fucking love. Mm-hmm. And I don't engage in big diatribes. Someone bombs the comment section and says, fuck, that movie sucks. If I don't know the person, I'll just cut them loose out of the fucking echo chamber because I don't really care what yeah. they think. Yeah. And, or I'll just ignore it. Let people have their little argument in the threads and just walk away. I just share things I'm, I'm happy with and I great, get great benefit out of occasionally doing that on social media. So I think it's, I think it's great. As a, as a journalist, as someone who, you know, I'm a multi-hyphenate, so I get paid many ways and I, mean, I teach, I run a magazine, I make movies, I do radio stuff, I do all kinds of shit. So, but it's all based around what I do, but I, I'm in multimedia, moving all around. So I call myself a journalist, call myself a writer. Sure, that's one of the, the tools in the, it's one of the brushes in the fucking thing, you know? Yeah. In the box. Yeah. But I will say as, as someone who has, can write and can commute effect, you know, communicate effectively with words and does take the idea of constructing sentences seriously to some degree and, um, you know, intelligently, reasonably intelligently, the fact that everybody's communicating on the internet for free and so easy and with such little <coughs> thought or sense of ownership of what they do sometimes can get aggravating and I think maybe has devalued the written word to some degree. Yeah. So on one hand, it's amazing that everybody can communicate, everybody can talk, everybody can share, everybody can connect. We're a global village. You know, that's fucking brilliant. Um, but there's just too many fucking words. I mean, you know, in the beginning of Scanners, Tie this back up to David Cronenberg, you know, um, Stephen Lack at the very beginning, he's sitting there at the rest of this food court or whatever he is, and he can just suddenly hear, I thought he's like, he's going into pure scanner mode, losing his fucking mind because he can hear everybody at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And to me, that's spending a lot of time dicking around on social media. That's the way I feel like. I feel like yeah. I can hear everybody at the same time, and I feel like my brain's going to blow. So <laughs> the job is to just kind of walk away, you know? Yeah. I remember, yeah. like, I uh, uh, went to a TIFF thing when I was, I think, 20, 
20 or 21. And uh, it was like a, a, an after party for Shadow the Vampire. And, um, and it, you know, there was all those celebrities there. And it was one of those really kind of uppity tiff parties. And I was kind of just, you know, I, I was very, not nervous, but like, I just, I, I felt totally like I didn't belong there. And I kind of didn't, because um, there was no other person my age there. Um, but then sitting like in the corner by himself was Roger Ebert. Who I was, you know, I, I was Ebert was like my critic, is the guy I sure, stuff by. Yeah, yeah, like you know, everybody I think had their different critic. Ebert was my sure. guy. And so I I was like, I'm fuck it, I'm gonna go over and talk to Roger Ebert. I, you know, it was all these like movie star people there, but I wanted, I was like, I want to go talk to Roger Ebert. So I went over and I was like, Can I talk to you? Can I sit with you? He was like, Yeah, if you see. And I got to chat with him for a good while. And it was just like he knew everything about cinema. Like, you know, and it was to me, it was like, that's the thing, that background, that that knowledge, that expertise was like, you know, why I was like, if I'm going to read someone's opinion on something, I would way rather it come from a place of that, you know, that disciplined, controlled place of, of this is what this guy dedicated his life to the study of. Then some fucking guy who's just like that movie shit. That movie sucked. That, yeah, that, it's, like, it's, it's, it's it's a point of dedication with with those guys, but also a point of passion that's never died. They don't have that kind of. A lot of people, uh, you know, go on Letterboxd and see all these snide comments. And it's just again, it's like what I said. I used to do too. It's using the the platform as comedy and to get attention sometimes, which is incredibly irresponsible. But you now it's taken on a whole new mutated form of life because I'd always think, even in my idiot of being a snarky prick. <laughs> It was always coming from a point of passion, and yeah. it was always coming from a point of understanding film history. So I wasn't a rube, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're just people out there that just want to shit talk things. You know, that's that's it, and they don't know anything, as you say. They're 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 ignorant. You know, yeah. <laughs> so it can get uh, aggravating. That's yeah, definitely. Um, I got another quote for you. This is the quote is. The horror films I've made have been satirical in one way or another or political. And I really think that is the purpose of the horror genre. George Romero. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And well, I mean, I, I, I do. I, but I, 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 what, what the point of the horror genre is, I guess, whatever point it is that the creator makes, you know, for George, uh, that's, that's for that. George. That was, that was his, his point, which yeah. is funny for George too, because I think of night of the living dead. I don't think he was originally trying to do that at all. He no. kind of f fell into that, you know. Yeah. I mean, Knight was not trying to be an answer to the civil rights movement or anything like that. They just hired the best actor for the job, which happened to be black. And uh, suddenly he got labeled with this important social... And he was ripping off I Am Legend. Let's put it right out there. He would be the first <laughs> yeah. one to admit it. Yeah. And, and uh, he got settled with that political filmmaker. But he came of age at a time as a filmmaker when that's kind of what the good filmmakers did. And they could. They could insert that kind of shit through the back door as the subtext. And, yeah, uh, and yeah I mean, you think you think of the seventies, you know, the paranoia films and the movies, you know, that were just being made that were like just looking at looking askew at their government and what they were being told. And you know, George was was of that that ilk, you know. And he was also, you know, again, these great filmmakers of the period, like George, were good filmmakers first, and they had their their loves, their passions weren't necessarily genre films. I mean, one of his favorite movies was Peeping Tom. Um, but he had a wealth of, of, of favorites, mostly from, from Westerns, musicals. Um, I mean, George's, George was completely esoteric with his tastes. And that's why his movies were so alive, 
because they were reflections of a multitude of in, in influences and interests. Yeah. Not just, I saw a bunch of horror movies. Now I'm a horror director. So right. I'm going to make another horror movie. It's like all you're doing is jerking off because it's, it's you're just repeating the beats of somebody that someone else. else's thought. Yeah. yeah. I remember like the, 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 like when George and I were working together on this movie and he invited me over and said, I want to show you a movie. And I was like, oh, cool. Okay. So I go over and, I, you know, we were writing a horror Western. So I figured it was either going to be a horror film or a Western. It was neither. It was this movie on the beach. Oh, and, yeah. and he was, so we watched it. I hadn't seen it before at the time and, and we watched it. And, and, uh, and he said, I think this movie has the feeling that this movie needs to have. And, and I immediately got what he meant. And I was like, see, that's what George can call from, right? Is like that thing of like, it doesn't even have to be in the same genre. If it's, but if it embodies the, the feeling that you're trying to establish in your film, you know, that was something that, that, I, that I thought was so cool was that like, you know, it would not have been in a lot of people's first idea of, of the movie to look at when you're writing a horror Western on the beach. I mean, it's, it's but, but, you know, for George, it was the first movie he thought of. And I thought that was such an interesting thing that that, that was his go-to. Yeah, he was an he was an intellectual and he, and, a, and a real cineast, you know for sure. Yeah. And like, do you think it's do you think there's still guys making horror movies that that have that political context now in the in the way that George was that that are that are yeah well absolutely but I don't think it's I think it's you know I, again yes there's so many movies being made now and there's so many different sensibilities. I can't keep track anymore. It's like why I gave up on comics in the eighties as a kid, yeah. because suddenly there were just, wasn't just like two or three Spider-Man titles. It was 20 and there was different timelines. And I'm like, ah, no, I can't fucking keep track and I can't afford this shit. And there's so many movies being made and from all walks of life that, um, yes, there, of course there are still people doing what, what George was doing, what, what the greats were doing. But there's also, in the mainstream, as we know, uh, trying to cap, and that's what's really annoying about shit like Twitter, that the legitimacy of this kind of stuff and how the mainstream is trying to look to that as their market, you know, and the TikTokers and everything else. So they're deliberately creating things that they think are going to be consumed by those people. And, oh my God, the, the dumbing down of culture. But you know, there's a lot of movies out there that are political, but it's not authentically political. They're just trying yeah. to, you know, you know, a lot of the conservative pricks would, would maybe say, oh, this movie's too woke. Uh, it's like, well, shut the fuck up about that. But sometimes they're not too fucking wrong. You know, they're sandwiching. Look, I'll, I'll use a case in point. Candyman, the remake. Mm -hmm. Beautifully shot. Oh my yeah. God, gorgeously yeah, yeah. shot. Uh, meticulously acted. But I found the political commentary was, which was stepping before the horror was clumsy and klutzy and inorganic on every conceivable level. And it made me angry because I felt it cheapened the issues that were actually trying to be addressed. They weren't addressed in any kind of intelligent way to their, didn't trust the intelligence of their audience to actually sit back and read between the lines and find that shit. They had to put it right out on the fucking forefront. And because of that, there was only one way to read any of it. There was do no think, point of discussion think, with anything. It was do you think the original bent. did that? Do you think the no, original? No, I think the original, you know, I mean, the original had a different po point of existing. Mm -hmm. But I think the original had um, that bubbling in the background. I, thought, I think it, when it started to come out, it came out in a very organic way. And it was never superseded the narrative. It never superseded the story or the horror. 
the subtext was always there and it was strong and potent and vital, but it didn't overshadow anything else. And I think George's movies did that too. That's why you can have multiple reads of them in various ways, is that it, the subtext never overtook the text. I think the subtext always has to remain. If you treat your audience with intelligently, the subtext has to remain the subtext. When you make it the text, you're turning it into something else. Then it's a diatribe. Then yeah, it's a monologue. Right. Yeah. You know, then you're talking at your audience and then you're not giving them the respect or the, the, the space to figure shit out. And then the mystery is removed. So I think, yes, there, there is a lot of political filmmakers out there that are trying so fucking hard to wave the flag that they're being political that sometimes I think the work they're creating is, is not going to make it either. And that's the problem. I don't think it's going to transcend time because they're working so hard to lock down on what is current. What and the way we move today with our, with our media is fast, 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 fast. Oh my God, traumatic, traumatic thing happening here. Oh, what, what, here's something else. That you're, you're like that guy in Dawn of the Dead, that zombie that's always picking up a gun and going, oh, oh, there's another gun and drops that <laughs> and grab. You know, that's the way we are with our media. So we have to be very careful when we're trying to create timeless works of art that we're, we have to tap into the thing that kind of unites a lot of that, that stuff. Because then it'll work 20, 30 years from now, it's still going right. to play. But a lot of the shit that I see now on screen all you're doing is creating movies that are going to live and die within the time capsule of our era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When your movie's just, you know, Donald Trump is bad, you know, that's... Yeah, as it. soon as I see that, it's like, that's great, but tomorrow, you know, in 20 years, no one's going to even remember what a Donald Trump was, really. I mean, it's going to be... <laughs> they're, they are, but it's going to be just this kind of vague footnote. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I was talking to, um, and he told me to say hello to you, by the way, Anthony de Blasi. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Good filmmaker. Yeah, he's yeah. great. He's uh, he's the next interview I'm doing actually for the show after, cool. after talking. Yeah, and we were chatting yesterday and we were talking about kind of what it means to, just the question of what does it mean to be a horror fan at this point? Like that, you know, which seems like sort of a, a general question, but but Anthony was sort of saying that that he thinks that for horror fans, it's difficult to sort of, that sense of identity that when we were younger and we were all, we all had the same kind of more or less the same films as a point of relation. We all saw Carpenter's films, Romero's films. We all saw these guys' movies. And that sense of identity now when you play, make your own playlist on Netflix and everybody's watching different shit and there's so much shit to watch is kind of displaced. What do you think about that? Um, no, I just think that it, it's time for people to, because we have such a, like, yeah, when we were kids, we had, a pocket of horror movies. Now, we had a pocket of American horror movies which were easily accessible to us. So those are the ones we were talking about the most. And then the more adventurous of us started to look, well, what's going over there, on over there in Italy? Or what's going on over here? And we dig a little deeper. But even then, the the excavation would only be, would be limited. Now we have another like 40 years of film history on top yeah. of that. Plus we've now, as you say, opened it up to multiple streaming platforms, Global Village. We have, we're saturated with so much new media and then all these old titles, which we didn't even know existed, are now also easily available for free on shit like Tubi. It's like, wow. Um, so your, <laughs> your question is, is what does it mean to be, be a horror fan anymore? Has it been devalued to some degree? Is that, is that your question? I guess the question is, no, not has it been devalued. It just, you know, what is the, like, I guess it's more about what is the identity of a horror fan now, right? Is it about, like, right. yeah. I think it's like, to be a horror fan, is to constantly, at its nucleus, if you're going to fall into the stuff, is to be a searcher, is to be someone who's questing. 
for something that, okay, here is the mainstream, here is light society, here are the things that we accept as, as what's happening. And then we look around the back there to see what's happening behind. We're always searching for some new kind of truth, some new kind of thrill, some new eye-opening thing. We're trying to dare ourselves, push our, change our, our, uh, where our boundaries are. We're constantly searching for some something. It's kind of like not reverse quest for enlightenment, but it is a kind of dark quest for enlightenment, which can end up ricocheting back and becoming, I think it is. I think it, it's the same kind of impulse, whether you be looking for God or life in the uh, outside the planet, as you are looking for a horror movie that's going to fuck you up. I mean, it's the same kind of human impulse to go further than what's accepted accepted in front of them. So that impulse hasn't changed. I just think that the movies have changed so much. And when and and like it was when we were kids, if the movies are becoming boring. If you're sitting there on Netflix and it's like, oh, here, great, here's another Netflix movie about a young girl and she's in a house and, <laughs> oh, yeah. eight twenty four, and here's another movie over there. It's elevator. What do they call this now? Elevator horror. Okay. <sighs> Guess what? Stop watching Netflix. Yeah. Stop doing that because there's so much more shit out there. And you know what else you can do? You can dig back through history to those movies that you didn't know existed. Look back into the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. Go back because there's lots of shit there that no one's yet uncovered. And go to other countries. <laughs> go to other countries, other yeah. walks of life. You can find other shit. And not only that, guess what? The word genre, I mean, it's a mark, some marketing, the word horror, some marketing schmo invented that to categorize a type of film to sell to an audience. So maybe don't define, just because something says it's a horror movie, maybe there's movies out there that are fucking way scarier and way more upsetting and it will offer you more as a as a consumer of art, of art, and but they're not called horror; they're called something else. Maybe they're called drama. Maybe they're called thriller. Maybe they're called romance. You have to look, look, look. I remember coming out of Lars von Trier's Melancholia at him, mm-hmm. and coming out of that feeling like someone kicked the fucking my knees out, and feeling more sense of wonder and dread, and that movie sticking to me and haunting me and hitting me at a certain point where all those great horror movies used to hit. Would I call that movie a horror movie? No, but it had the same kind of effect. And there were moments in it that absolutely covered the same territory. You know, and it was no yeah. surprise when Von Trier would chase that up with like Antichrist, which was doing the same thing, but legitimately now trying to be a horror film. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I remember seeing, uh, have you ever seen the movie The White Ribbon? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it Michael Haneke? Is that his? Is that, yeah, is that, that was George Romero. I remember him saying like, I just want to make The White Ribbon. <laughs> really? And I said, well, why don't you just fucking just get some people together in the apartments and we'll just film something and do something. He's like, yeah, well, uh, it's the director's union. I can't just do that. Can't do that. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, no, The White Ribbon, yeah, it's a great, devastating. To your point, like, that was a movie that was like that for me. That's not a horror film. But when I walked out of that movie, I felt uncomfortable and, and it did that thing to me that all a lot of the great horror movies that I... But, that but Haneke like, is, a, the thing is, Haneke does make horror movies that are, I call them seeker. You know, The Piano Teacher's a horror fucking movie. Yeah, yeah, Funny yeah. Games is a horror movie. That guy knows how to manipulate and fuck you up and transcend and, and take you to another place. So there's, my, my point is, is, is as a horror fan, you're a quester. You're a searcher and a seeker. You can watch Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 to 8 50,000 times till you're dead and still be a horror fan. You can also put that shit aside and go looking in other places and, and search for something new. It's, it's endless quest. And also, now, guess what? You got a little phone in your hand. You can do stuff. You can go make your own horror film. 
I mean, yeah. you can get out there and do shit that you couldn't do before. So you, as a fan, you can now also be an artist. You can be, you can communicate and express your love for the shit in so many different ways. And hey, now you don't have to bug Tony Timpone or Chris Alexander to get published anymore. You can start <laughs> your own blog. God bless you. And you can tell everybody what you love. You can be a manic street preacher online telling people what horror movies are fucking great. There's so yeah. many opportunities now to be a fan and to express that love. All right. So now I want to talk a little bit about your films. Um, and uh, and I, I watched some of your, your movies to prepare for this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, I started with the beginning with Blood for Arena. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but for the listeners, who are, who are some of the... It feels like you're channeling some influences with, with that film. It's influences and it's also a uh, state of mind. So right. the influ- <laughs> influences will always be uh, the, the Europeans, John Roland, Jess Franco, that obsessive style filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where, um, you know, trying audiences' patience, you know, trying to like get them in a shot, but then stick it with the, stick with the shot for a long fucking time. I like having a nice frame and having characters move within with a nice sense of brooding atmosphere to really drag you into a, I like to create a world. Um, breaking the fourth wall sometimes by characters looking directly at you. That's a Herzog thing, so there's a lot of Bernard Herzog in there. Um, you know, there's some Cronenberg in there, too. There's there's all those influences of, of my heroes. There's a lot of George in there, too. Irina has like a Martin kind of element to yeah. it that I'm, I'm kind of in there. You know, and aesthetically, little, she kind of looked like... Um... I don't know if this is what you're going for, but it just would have remind me of the way that Michael Caine is in Dress to Kill. That that well, Dress to Kill, I mind. I mean, I just made a movie called Girl with the Straight Razor, which is basically my dime store, my dollar store diploma, and then she's supposed okay. to look like uh, Bobby in Dress to Kill for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's a huge influence as well. That kind of fake blonde, you know, or like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity with the fake blonde wig that's intentionally gaudy, and, right? And uh, there's a lot of influences. But I think at the end of the day, and this can be said of all the films, and this is why some people will respond to them and some people despise them, and I'm fine with that. They're not... And they were really hard on Irina, especially because I was the Fangoria guy and they were expecting like a big slam-bang bloodbath and they got this like nickel and dime arty fucking immersive thing. Yeah. Uh, and I've never lost that. I've always stuck with that. I've managed to make all my movies my own way, for better or for worse, completely controlled. But... Um, there's that feeling that I had as a kid staying up watching these weird films that were from Europe or even down market American stuff, you know, like the Stephen Thrower Nightmare USA kind of stuff, you know, um, like what you came from the scene. But seeing them at that point late by yourself, where it's an intimate experience between you and the film after hours when your mind is not operating at full capacity. So you're kind of receptive to this weird shit. And then you fall asleep and then you wake up and you're still in that world, but you're not sure at what point in the world you're in it. So, and then when it's all said and done, you wake up the next day and you're thinking, did I actually watch that movie? And you're trying to replay it in your head and maybe you didn't even like it, but you can't shake it. So you need to go back into that world again to see if you can recapture that feeling. It's like a waking dream. So all my movies are uh, deliberate. You know, there's they're an amalgam of many influences musically because I do all the music myself, everything. Mm-hmm. But they're always a deliberate attempt to create that somnambulist kind of after hours waking dream, 3 a.m. late night television beamed in from another planet movie experience that I had as a kid that you don't really get anymore 
Yeah, and know. so this is a, like a Bud Ferrer and I watched. Uh, I, I, it was like four in the morning. I woke up. I was having trouble sleeping. I was like, I got to crack into Chris's movies before I talk to him. So I'm gonna throw this on and, and check this out. I can't sleep, so made a cup of tea and I put it on. I was kind of half out of it. And it was trancy and it was, you know, and the colors kind of washed over me and the music. And, but it was like this kind of, there was just like this aching quality to it is the word that kind of just came to yeah. mind. I was like, there's yeah. like an ache to this movie. There's, a, and, um, you know, to me, it was like, it, it seemed to me that there, that there, that you, that your intention was to go with something more that was to evoke an, a, a, a response, an emotional response than it was an interest in telling sort of a shredhead narrative. Story. No, I don't like I don't like straight ahead narrative. So you know, and I do as a I like all movies, but <clears throat> the movies that always stick with me are the ones that don't go conventional <clears throat> point A to point B to point C, and go around, and then also that yeah exemplify mood, emotion, as opposed to um, you know I, I'm the guy that said fuck you to film school twice because I couldn't stand the whole conventions. Like why does it have to be three acts? Why do we need this stuff? What are you talking about? And that's a very North American, very rigid way of looking at creating art and movies. Uh, whereas my European brothers and sisters, it's not the way they operate necessarily, at least the ones I, I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, definitely there is a story in those films. You know, and Irina is, is really just a story about, uh, well, there's, it, it's, yeah, there's emotional arcs, not necessarily a story. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. She's, she's an out, <laughs> they're outsider movies. She's an outsider. She's slave to all these different kinds of regrets and, and sadnesses and heartaches, but she carries through like all of us, you know, I and mean, we just go through life and the older we get, the more fucking things we set pile on us. And then eventually we die. And our hope is that we create new versions of ourselves, whether it be through children or through creating art and leaving some kind of influence that'll inspire somebody else to then go on and maybe take it even further. So in Irina, it's, that's basically what it is. This is her child. She, this thing that never dies, but she is dying. She's on her way out, and she wants to give it to somebody. It was a curse for her, and, and at the end, she gives it to the prostitute in hopes that it might be a blessing for her. And it does. Instead of cursing the woman that she gives it to, it's a salvation. And then the woman finds some sort of like empowerment through it. Now, where that woman will be in another hundred years is anybody's guess. But it's about things continuing and passing things on. And making some semblance of good from a life that's not necessarily uh, been good. It it also had kind of a vibe to me. It's I mean not not as on the nose as this, but it reminded me a bit of uh, Farrar's movie The Addiction, which um, I've never seen. No, that's so funny. Yeah, it has. No, a bit and of- a lot of people say The Addiction, and it, I know because vampirism is playing it out that she's like a junkie in withdrawal. So there's. Not that really element. that part. Yeah, I guess that on an obvious way that part, but but tonally, it, it, you know, uh, that's what it made me. But I mean, I'm, I'm a Ferrara fan, so I mean, I'm I love there, yeah, Driller Killer. Go. To me, I'm thinking more Driller Killer when I'm making this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of those moments, you know, in Driller Killer, there's all those like, it's not exactly a fast paced fucking movie. Like, people looking for a, you know, I remember in the day, Driller Killer. Yeah, you'd watch it. Like, the title, yeah. <laughs> there's like one, a couple of drill kills at the end. I mean, what what's going on here? But you're yeah. loving it for so many. You just <laughs> loving watching this guy walk around New York. I sometimes I call my movies walk exploitation movies. Yeah. Because I love watching uh ethereal fit women that are like kind of these forces of nature, uh, just kind of like move through environments. You know, I like finding great locations and putting them just walking through them. 
And I was going to comment on that. I love some of the locations in your films. Like, where where are you shooting a lot of this? I'm stuff? shooting it all in um, everything, and that includes my full moon stuff, like Necropolis Legion, which was all an American cast primarily. No, I just brought them all up here to a Milton. Milton, you know? okay, yeah. So we shot Milton, Burlington, Oakville, Hamilton, all over the place. Any place I can find something cool that no one's used. Yeah, right. Uh, I'll, I'll steal. Yeah, yeah. And it was, and it, you were talking about these the characters too, having this. There's sort of these loners, and I, I was going to comment on this. This sort of displacement it seems to be a common thread throughout your films of these characters who don't really, they're 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 just not part of the world they're in. They're they're sort of walking through it, or you know. And I thought that was an interesting. But that's thematic. the way. I mean, I, I've always been a, lo- a lone wolf myself, and that's how I felt. But not in a depressing. Oh, I've got no friends. <laughs> I got tons of fucking friends, but I don't necessarily want to hang out with them all the time. I like being by myself because I feel like as an observer, you do your best work as a human being by kind of sitting back and just, you know, observing things and then going back to your corner and <clears throat> making those connections as to what it all means. You sometimes make the best decisions of your life. and It's just a place I'm very comfortable and like being in is, is kind of rocking it alone. And coming out, I'm, what do they call it, introverted extrovert, I guess? Yeah. You're yeah. coming out, you get to experience the human connection, you're good at it, you love it, I'm a father, I love it, you know, but then you always need that space to go goodbye, and you retreat, and then you observe. And sometimes, you know, growing up, that maybe could have been a lonely place to be, because you were comfortable in that place, and maybe you were looking out from the uh, inside, looking out and going, I wish I could run with the pack a little more without feeling like I didn't want to run with the pack. You know, and then as you get older, you make peace with that. And you're very comfortable with, with who you are. But uh, I've always felt like uh, kind of on the fringe, always myself. And I, right. I still do. And then even when I was running America's number one horror magazine, I was still doing things that other people weren't doing. I was still on the fucking fringe. <laughs> as a filmmaker, I'm on the fringe on every conceivable level. Um, <clears throat> so I'll never be part, even if I try, I don't think it's going to work. I'll never be part of any kind of zeitgeist a mainstream thing yeah and that's not like a fuck the mainstream no i just it doesn't it's work. not you it's oil just, and water it just yeah. doesn't work yeah yeah just it's not your bag um and i also was like noticing like you know that the films just uh, primarily i mean necropolis a little less but but a lot of the other no, ones no. are 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 pretty light on dialogue there's very little yeah. spoken word and yeah uh but you know the the coverage the shots you chose where, where you put the camera seems to be like a, where the emphasis went instead of on you know the things these people are saying did you shot list or how did you sort of prepare no so i i'm like a, i'm like write the script throw the script away i'm right. like um and necropolis is the only one that had a script it was written by somebody else i i redid it and i didn't shoot it i always shoot my own movies so i feel with necropolis even though it's maybe <coughs> the most accessible of them all and it has the most dialogue. It's my least favorite because mm-hmm. it feels le- least personal. And uh, there's a lot of things in that. I, I wouldn't, some shots I don't like and there's some regrets I have about that, but it's another story. Um, yeah, so what I usually do is I, um, sometimes I create the music first. I uh, come up with an idea, come up with a title, American International Pictures, you know, come up with the title first in the poster, but yeah. in my head I do. Come up with a great title, I'm like, that's cool, what would I do with this? Or there's a, something, I, I, a riff or something I, I like, like an, an image in my mind of something. Like with Queen of Blood, it was like, 
a vampire Western sort of, but like this kind of earth goddess, but I wanted it to be almost like a slasher movie where she was nature itself, completely apathetic to anything else. And she was just moving like, you know, Mask of the Red Death. She was the plague that just walked around and everything she touched would die. And it wasn't personal, you know? So I had this in my mind of this kind of like how this thing would move throughout the West and throughout time and just wanted to reproduce and just make more of it, like, like you know, autonomous. And then I tied it into a sequel to Blood for Irina, which really it isn't. But it's a spiritual sequel, and same character, same DNA. But so I start with kind of an image, music, and a location. <coughs> Find locations, and then I, I come up with an actress or an actor. And then I, um, I kind of start forming it in my head, and I build it from there. And then I write down a synopsis, pretty detailed. And then because I produced them myself too, I cut that. I find the locations. I say, we're going to shoot this amount of time. And I cut the sequences into like, what days we're going to do this, 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 this. And then I have each day, I have a list of the shots and everything I need to get. And then we get on set and we start, everybody knows what they got to do. I know exactly what needs to be done. And then I just run the show and we get everything done. And I've never been over. I've never had a problem. I get everything I need. And, uh, that's it. They're, they're, they're meticulously planned, but not in the way most movies are meticulously planned. They're right. planned up here. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I noticed a, a, another thing, too, in quite a few of your, of your films, where there's like these shots of inanimate objects, primarily older inanimate objects. And I was thinking, like, was that, do, do, do you think that's sort of, are you trying to sort of create a sense of, of the past by showing these old? Always. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, always a sense of, um, you know, the past. It's hard to articulate. I think you've already, you, you get it without having to put it into language. But I don't know, there's, um, there's a scene that maybe illustrates that from someone else's work. And that's Jean Roland's Living Dead Girl. You ever seen that? Yep. Where she's, you know, Queen of Blood has some of that in it too. She comes back from the dead after being gone for a long time. And she's walking around the house and just picking things up and touching them. And connecting to them in a weird way. And Night of the Living Dead has that moment too with the music box that opens up. Yeah. And just plays that riff. And to me, that's one of the most beautiful and forgettable moments of the movie. And it's just looking at Judy O'Dee, looking at that thing. Um, and just the way we, yes, we do connect and look at objects and touch them. And even watching my children pick objects up and look at it and wondering what's going on in their head and how they're connecting to it, what questions they're asking of this thing. And then to see artifacts and things that endure through multiple generations that have died and come before them. Um, maybe creating that, if not sinister, then haunted, you know? Yeah. They've been touched and experienced, enjoyed. That's why old dolls are so scary. Forgotten. Not because, not because they're going to come to life and go, I'm going to fucking kill no. you. No, yeah. No, because... Because at one been, point, some kid loved it. And, yeah, it's been yeah. loved and it's been discarded and it's managed yep. to survive, but that child, you know, has long since become dust. And it's, it's, it can be quite disturbing to think that everything is all about that obsession with death and your mortality and thinking that um, everything is finite and that there are things on this planet that will outlive you, that will keep continuing on. And God knows where they're going to end up or who they're going to end up with. It's, yeah, it's all tied into that many different things that go through my mind at any given time. Right. And so I... Uh... We're almost uh, we're almost done here, but I wanted to talk about your teaching now. So, um, I was reading about about your program and stuff. And uh, mm -hmm. um, tell me a bit about that. How did that come about? Like, what would you mean you decide to do that? And 
Are you enjoying it? And what 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 is it like? What's your sort of syllabus? What do you what are you, what do you talk about? Um, so I used to teach um, when I was at Room Mark. Sorry, my stupid little light keeps. Yeah, so I used to teach. Um, you're, you're great. I used to teach Fear on Film. It was a course I developed. It was horror film history, but it was done through, you know, spectrum of what I liked, you know, in a way. And um, I dropped out of Sheridan College when I was a kid. I dropped out of OCAD as well because I didn't like rules and all that horse shit. But I went back to Sheridan and I said, look, I got this. I now I'm a fancy writer and I do all this stuff and I know some stuff and I want to teach this course. They said, okay. So then I came back to Sheridan and I taught my course for two years. And this was like 2005. Okay. Uh, then left it and it taught again. I taught at the Toronto Film College for a while, blah, blah, blah. So, flash forward, now that we're this uh, crazy, weird, Zoom-laden village that can uh, communicate with anyone in the world anytime, I just simply thought that um, it's something I could handle again, and I missed being able to have a kind of audience and a community around me and be able to impart this stuff. You want to share what you know and share what you love. So I, I, um, I went back to the college again. I said, hey, and they said, okay. And now I do it virtually uh, with people all across America and Canada. It's called Fear on Film. It happens every Tuesday night. <laughs> We're about four season, four sessions in. It'll die after eight or seven. And it comes back again in the spring. Renews in the spring. And it's just basically, you know, starting right at the beginning of time with the uh, Edward Moybridge horse experiments. You know, Moybridge actually had murdered his wife's lover. And uh, the governor of California paid the legal defense to get him off so he could fly him to California to take pictures of his, pictures of his fucking racehorse so that he could prove that his horse jumped off the ground when all four legs left the ground. So when he did that, he took those 12 pictures, put them on that board, it's become a piece of uh, basically ground zero for cinema. But then it starts with that because, you know, movies were basically invented on a guy getting away with blowing a guy's head off. So, <laughs> And then we move literally up from there through legitimate film history, which I can always find weird ways to tie the Lumiere brothers, everybody into the genre somehow. Uh, Birth of a Nation, all that shit that you need to know. And then we lock deep down, boom, into horror, legitimate horror, and we don't stop. Right now, this, this tonight, we're going to move into um, 19, <laughs> 1950s. 40s, we're going to do Val Luton. 50s, obviously, touch on atomic horror, McCarthy-esque, paranoia horror, and then uh, move to the drive-ins, how the drive-ins became the passion pits, birth of the exploitation film, American International Pictures, and hammer horror, and all that fun stuff. So we're touching on all of it, but it's all done, in, in again, through my lens, my filter, my experience. Uh, and it's, it's just a great group of people. You know, It's, it's really cool because while a lot of us lifers, you know, we, we get together on social media, we chat, 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 blah, 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 blah. There's a lot, still a lot of people out there that have loved this stuff, but have always been told it's not good for them. And now through Fear on Film, you're getting a lot of people for the first time getting together in this kind of, even though it's virtual, it's still a group of people. And now seeing their brothers and sisters together and getting excited about just talking about what movies they saw and why they liked them, or what movie that they saw that nobody liked that they should like, and then also now incorporating the, 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 tra the tra trajectory, the arc of film history and transplanting it onto that. And it's, it's just a joy for me to see those little light bulbs go off in people's heads, you know? And that's why I, I needed to get back to it and feel that. And I'm glad I did. And I'll be doing it um, ongoing. Um, there's two sort of 
let's say subgenres of horror that uh, that I that I've observed over the last little while that I think needs some clarification. You're probably the exact right person uh, to do this. Can you please, for me, just define what a Jalo film is and what folk horror is? You got to talk to my friend Kayla Janice about the folk, <laughs> folk horror. She directed, as you know, Woodlands Dark and Dangerous, the de facto first and last word on that. But um, so giallo is the Italian word for yellow. And giallos were simply a, a collection of grisly pulp paperback novels that were available in Italy throughout the 50s um, and 60s. They were kind of at the pharmacies and the turnstiles and the covers were yellow and they always dealt with, they were kind of the successor to the Edgar Wallace novels. They were always about, you know, murders, sex, you know, some kind of killers, some kind of mysteries, some family secrets, you know, contemporary gothic stories with a little bit of romance. And um, so that's in essence what a giallo is. Now the film extension of that is, um, I guess, Mario Baba's Blood and Black Lace, or The Evil Eye, like some of those early ones <laughs> can be called giallos. And then later on, Dario Gento's films, I mean, obviously. So all the iconography, the black gloves, the fucking badass pounding music, Goblin or whoever else did it, Fabio Rizzi or whatever, pounding away on those bases and long scenes of point of view before there was slashy point of views with Halloween and shit. Argento and Baba were doing this, going down corridors, going after young women, killing them and, and all that fun stuff. So it's, it's style, you know, beautiful Nouveau Vogue style and um, murder, blood used as a kind of uh, ink painted on screen in a very fantastical way, hyper heightened reality, murder mysteries. I mean, that's, that's basically all giallos are. But there's, again, a specific way to shoot them and to realize them where they can kind of fall into that, into that category. Well, folk horror, yeah, folk horror, I don't know. There's a fucking tree. Some shit happens <laughs> by the tree. It's a folk horror movie. <laughs> I don't know. That's such a broad one for me that, you know, I, I don't, it's, it's, earthy period piece horror that's about worshiping the earth witchcraft <laughs> all that shit i don't know did, kayla thinks that you know Witchfinder general is a folk horror movie i guess it is but think about the Witchfinder general the conquer worm and then think of the witch and then think of blood on satan's claw and you're kind of in that ballpark yeah right yeah <laughs> well thank you so much man for coming and doing this is there anything you want to talk to us about that you got coming up or anything you're working on or anything like that no see well I'm, I'm doing this teaching thing's kind of taken off into other realms that i can't really talk about now so doing that there's um another full moon movie that i'm probably prepping soon uh other than that I, oh, I'm writing my Roger Corman book, too, which was due last year, and I've been fucking the dog with this thing. I'm not finished yet. I'm almost done. And it's about the, um, the Poe films. It's, it's uh, all my yeah. interviews I've done with Roger for 20 years, compiled into one magnum. We finished the, during the, the pandemic, right? Got to call him up every other week, and we finished it all up. So we have this huge, massive fucking interview spanning the entire run of those films that I'm cutting up into pieces. A lot of beautiful photographs and things no one's ever seen before. Um, and that's that's it. There's always something going on. There's probably more I can't remember. Right now, I'm just trying to stay alive. Trying to get over the fucking Yeah, nerves. man. Drink some tea. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're... you're it's going to be fuck. fun to watch this because you can just, like, literally... Uh, I'm going to have to preface this with... 
with letting the listeners know that you just got over COVID and that's why you sound like you're losing a lung through this. Oh man. And it's also, I can feel it. Like you, you, you're talking to good, but it's good because I'm teaching tonight and this has given me a kind of workout. Now I know what my window is before I start to like, before your voice need a respirator. Yeah. Then I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it, Chris. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, thanks man. for sharing with me. All right, cool. All right, brother. Thank you. All right. Take it easy, man. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you, And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Be sure to post, comment, share, and like, but don't forget good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. And the best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.